Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Josh Smith Show. This week, my guest, Mike Clancy, uh, from Black Rifle Coffee, works down in Salt Lake City. He's going to be spending some time in Idaho this summer in Montana. Stopped in to make some knives and started telling me, just dropped my damn phone. Just started telling me some stories in the kitchen about his invasion as a young Marine into Iraq, and I stopped him and asked, hey, will you do this on a podcast? I want to hear this the first time on a podcast. And uh, it was the best decision I made, and he was very nice to to agree to do it. We did not know each other well. I spent a little bit of time in South Carolina together earlier this winter, but um, did not know each other well, and I wasn't sure how I'd feel about opening up on a podcast, and uh, boy, did he. Um, it was incredible. Uh, he goes deep and hard about his childhood and growing up. Um, throws a big shocker right into the conversation in the beginning and, uh, and then talks about his time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And quite frankly, it's just amazing. It blows me away every time I hear these guys talk. And uh, it's not a guy with a big podcast. He's not a hey, look at me guy. He's not, you know, he's not writing a book, though he probably should. Um, he just told his story. And it's unbelievable. So uh, I felt privileged and honored to be here to get to hear it. And I'm, I'm really stoked that you get to hear it as well. These kind of people and these kind of stories should be told and they should be heard. So check out uh, Mike Clancy's at, at Fancy Schmancy Clancy on Instagram. Uh, Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, just an all-around good dude. So ladies and gentlemen, Mike Clancy. All right, Mike Clancy, how you doing? I'm good, brother. Yeah, good. G- glad to be here. 
Yeah, I'm glad you glad you came. You've only uh, been here what a couple hours, and I've already got you. Yeah, you trap trap down in here to a podcast. <laughs> you don't waste any time, man. No, no. <laughs> well, like we we're, I was saying, I was saying, you you started telling me a story, and I'm like, hey, let's just do a podcast because it's definitely seems to be, uh, um, it seems to be more natural and better. Like, just so the listener knows, like we actually don't really know each other that well. It's not like we've been together a ton or whatever. And I haven't heard a bunch of your stories or a bunch of your background. And it's, it seems to be better to actually just sit and talk to each other about it on this instead of like trying to redo it in a couple yeah, of days. I agree. Yeah. It's my first podcast, by the way. That's pretty cool. That's, that's a uh, surprising to me since you kind of live in uh, the land of podcasts and Sur- yeah. Surrounded by all these people that do podcasts multiple days, you know, yeah. all the time and, yeah. Well, that's sometimes it seems like that's the way it works. Like everyone's always looking out at stuff and like sometimes you don't realize like, oh, we could just grab him right over in that room, pull him in here. I'm interesting too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talk to me. Yeah. Hey guys. Yeah. Um, so what uh, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do here in the next couple of days. We might, we might hammer on some blades in the shop. We might go do a little bit of bear hunting. Are you, are you a hunter? So you live down in, or currently you've lived down in Salt Lake. Yeah, I just, I moved there October. Well, I got the call to move there in October, 2019. And I officially moved there in January, 2020. Okay. So I've been there as of uh, today. Yeah, so as little, of today. This yeah. is the, yeah. I moved out today. Yeah. Growing up. Yeah. Getting out <laughs> on your own. up. <laughs> yeah. North. So you were uh, down in Salt Lake at headquarters uh, for people that don't know. Um, you work with Black Rifle Coffee or Forum mm-hmm. with and for, I guess. Uh, kind of heading off on a new venture, trying out, checking out some new territory, kind of mm-hmm. see what the future holds, which is cool. Um, so, yeah, are you are you a hunter or are you like, you're, you're kind of maybe coming up into the Idaho area, it sounds like. Um yeah, I, I I would I would call myself a late bloomer when it comes to hunting. Um, I kind of grew up uh, around hunting. My dad, you know, South Florida, grew up in the swamp in the Everglades, and my dad has swamp buggies and airboats, and we'd go shoot pigs and deer, but we never really uh, had a tag, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. So I mean, they, they call it poaching nowadays, but yeah, my dad was kind of a you know a little swamp rat himself growing up in Miami through the fifties, sixties, and Right. They, they kind of just did their own thing, and that's kind of how I saw it. But right. as of uh, uh, four years ago, that's when I wanted to kind of take responsibility for myself. And I've, I've heard of all these people hunting, and and uh, it just sounds like a lifestyle that I wanted to be a part of and doing it properly and learning. By, right. You know, I'm surrounded by people that are just amazing at it, and that's their lifestyle. A common denominator between everybody that hunts and is in that that community is that they're just really good, wholesome people that are in touch with nature. Right. And that it's really appealing to me. So, yeah. so four years ago, I, I took the, you know, hunter's safety and the education and did all that stuff, got legal and, uh, picked up a bow. And honestly, the bow hunting was the only thing that really seemed appealing to me. I, I'll shoot an animal with a, with a rifle or harvest that way. But it was it was just uh, more shooting the bow and being more primal was more uh, romantic in my opinion. Yeah, uh, just coming from the military background and right. shooting a lot of guns. Every every gun you can think of, um, I just 
was kind of over that phase yeah. of carrying a weapon. Um, but like I said, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> it's not like it's beneath me to uh, pick up a rifle and, and harvest right. an animal that way. I just, it, the, the bow is just, to me, is just uh, more appealing right now. Well, and there's a real, I know with the archery hunting, there's a real like just connection um, and also just the challenge. I mean, quite frankly, if you know where the animals are, if you can find the animals um, with a rifle, I mean, if you're a relatively decent hunter, you can, if, if the animals are at least in a good spot, I mean, you get within four or 500 yards and right. kind of execute one and they don't even have a chance. And like you say, I'm not against it. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I rifle hunt as well as archery hunt, but, uh, you can be 10 yards from an elk. I was talking with, uh, God, who was, who was I talking with? Was it Trevor? Somewhere we were laughing about how you can be within 10 yards of an elk and not have a shot. With you bow, know, you mean? Yeah, with a yeah, bow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and have it not. Which it. happened to me multiple times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, but that's just, it comes with the territory of, of, of bow hunting is, that's why it's, that's why that is there. It's, it's the challenge of putting yourself in position, um, being able to get within shooting distance, which is depending on the hunter, you know, for me, it's a 60 and within, yep. um, anything beyond 60, I'm not too confident with taking a shot. Yep. And so you have to get in with that, within that range. And, you know, you have so many things weighing against you. Right. So it's just, it's so appealing to me. And it, when you are successful, when you do all the things right, the wind is right for you, the, you're calling correctly, or you're just in the right place at the right time. And it all comes together. It's just the feeling of harvesting an animal like that is just, uh, it's amazing to me. It's funny how, when you say it all goes right, like you can do everything right and have it not mm-hmm. work out. And then you can be eating a sandwich on the side of the hill, talking with your buddy yep. and all of a sudden a an elk, like you hear something break and here come walks an elk down the oh, yeah. trail and you hear people killing an elk and like they did nothing, right? right. They did nothing. <laughs> They're on an ATV yeah. on the road drinking beer. and Right. And then next year, like do everything right, work their ass off and don't see an elk the whole year. Right. You know, it's kind right. of funny. Um, what is your favorite as far as like hunting in the last four years? Is there a species that you kind of like going after or? Um, I, I would say if there's one I could do, uh, and the only one I can do would be elk chase yeah. elk in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there's just something about being in that dense forest, um, and being in a very quiet, deep drainage and you're just hearing bugles around you. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, it's a, and it's a experience and a sound that most people never will ever experience. It's bone chilling. It's bone chilling. It yeah. sounds like an alien screaming and it could be a herd of, you know, three, it could be like a you know a stag herd or it could just be a, it could be hundreds of them and they're just right. trampling through and it's, it sounds like a stampede and it's just, it's an amazing experience to be down in their, in their living room, yeah. smelling them, uh, witnessing what their, you know, what their behavior and, uh, not a lot of people get that. They, they, the, the, the type of hunting where you see them spot and stock and, um, it's all open. That's a, that's a type that I haven't really got into much. Yeah. It's been a lot of here in Idaho and, um, in Montana, but I haven't really done like 
New Mexico where it's like right. that high desert or, 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 um, I've helped on a elk hunt in Salt Lake city and that's just a real open area and you can see from range to range, right. Valley to Valley. And that seems to be, I mean, that's, I think that's also part of the appeal. I know, I don't know all the seasons and how it all works out in other States. I haven't done much elsewhere as far as elk or anything elsewhere, but, uh, you know, here in Montana, if you're going to experience the rut, it's going to be an archery season. Like there's a couple spots. I mean, the Bob Marshall wilderness, you can rifle hunt. It's the early hunt stuff, but it's pretty limiting access. I mean, you pretty much got to take horses in and, um, you can hunt during the rut with a rifle. Um, but for the most part, if you're rifle hunting elk, it's cold, the rut's over, they've kind of bachelored up Mm -hmm. and, you're just kind of trying to get lucky to see them. You're not, you're not having the interaction. You don't feel like you're really becoming a part of it. And I mean, obviously I think with the bow, that's the other, like you say, I think you can have total failure and have like your hunt of the year, mm-hmm. you know, if with those elk bugling and pissing on themselves yeah. and chasing Smashing each other. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's like your adrenaline's off the charts. It's the closest to me that I've found from like, being in combat, that experience of like your face to face with something that, you know, uh, whatever it is, and you want to call it an energy, but you're face to face with this thing that is uh, living, breathing, and mm-hmm. it's it's got, you know, hormones and, and emotions running through it, and you do too. Yeah. And you're trying to do your best to do what you're training to do and, and to take this animal properly. And uh, he's, you know, he's got other things in mind. Right. So you have these two forces that are meeting in the, in the middle of the woods. Sure. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible, uh, exchange of, uh, yeah. Energy. I would, would call it because I mean, you have this hunter that's, 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 it's electrifying that you're down there with a, with a sharpened stick, right? you know, and you're trying to take this, you know, 800 pound animal down with yeah. swords on its head, you know? And yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. And it's hard to, it's hard to describe that to somebody that hasn't done it. You know, they're like, I don't right. even know what an, a bugle sounds like. And you, then you, sh- you know, pull out your phone and you're like, it sounds like this. And like, yeah. wow, I didn't even know that was a th- thing. Yeah. And you, what you can't equate, even when you're showing them your phone is like the thunderous, right. like vibration, the echo, the echo like right. all, the, the bounce off the mountain behind you. Like it's all, it's all so cool. So when you were, I mean, growing, so I, I didn't know you, you grew up in Florida, you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, entire childhood stayed there. What, what did your parents do, uh, like for work? Yeah, or? this this is going to get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was born in Miami in 1983. Um, uh, my dad at that time had a uh, drug smuggling business. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. My dad was, uh, six foot four, uh, Jufro, you know, um, uh, you got the Ray-Ban sunglasses, gold Rolex, gold chains. <clears throat> he had, probably five scarab race boats that he tunneled out the hulls and just ran drugs through the Caribbean. Wow. Helicopters. We had houses all over Miami and this is just me secondhand, you know, telling the stories from my family telling me the stories. Cause I'm obviously an infant right. this time, but so I was born into this world of, um, I would call it chaos. You know, my dad yeah. was a smuggler. 1983 was the, um, was the most dangerous place in the world to live at that time. Was that the time that they were doing the war on drugs and um, like the U S or 
I don't know exactly the, those those years it started. I know that was the Reagan administration that did mm-hmm. that, but I do know that was when the Colombian cartel came in was offing anybody that had to do with that was a, basically a competitor yeah. to their operation. So if you watch uh, Cocaine Cowboys as a documentary, mm-hmm. kind of lays it all out. Uh, the Colombians were were just whacking everybody and that right. it would just it wasn't like precision hits it was like they would go into a mall and just spray and kill 20 innocent people right trying to get one person they just wanted fear i mean they just wanted everyone to fear them and stop yeah. what they're doing so they can completely monopolize the market wow what so, was your dad what what was the drug that they were running mostly marijuana but it was you know cocaine came into play at that time, that was a big. So I've been watching the show. Uh, just start, I just I'm not a TV real person, but like we try to pick a show now and then watch. My wife hasn't been impressed. She usually falls asleep during it, but been watching the show Narcos, mm-hmm. like Narcos Mexico, and the, it's like pro- obviously partially some fiction, but also like they'll show real life footage of something, an event that happens. Sure. So they're following kind of a timeline and. Um, a lot of that stuff's happening on that show and I'm only like a, a half of a season into it. So it's brand new to me. Probably half the audience has already seen it all, but um, it's actually like quite interesting about how like the power, power struggles and what was happening back then. And um, yeah, it's crazy. So, I mean, your and dad how was, our government played a role in it and yes, I mean, it wasn't, we weren't, we 100%. obviously, you know, on paper we were, we were fighting them in quotation marks, you know, we we're, but right. we were also in bed with hundred percent with them as well. Yeah, covering up things sure. and money was obviously buying buying people's. Uh, um, I mean, cocaine and built Miami. Right before the eighties, Miami was just like this little retirement spot. You know, it was real nice little neighborhoods. But you go there now, and it's high rises. It looks like Dubai. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy. So what ended up happening then with your dad? Did I mean? Yeah. Well. Um, so there were a lot of shootings going on in the neighborhood. We, you know, we were in North Miami. Um, our house actually got shot up one night. Uh, and my mom just was like, Nope, not going to do it. So we packed up everything. My, my dad built this house that we were living in. Mm-hmm. We, le- we left that and we went straight up to a place called Jensen beach, which is like two and a half hours North on the coast. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it was, my, I'm not going to get too much into detail, but we, we moved a lot. Um, right. it, was, it, was, it was, I grew up in tough neighborhoods. Um, we, I think I moved 18 times before I was 16. I moved out when I was 16. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was wild. And How old were you when your mom made that move, like the first move? Oh, uh, I was a baby. Yeah, yeah, so you don't remember any of that, really. Yeah, we were kind of going back and forth in Miami. My grandparents lived there. My aunt and uncle lived there. So we still had family living there, but my mom wanted to basically extract the family mm-hmm. from Miami in that that environment, mm-hmm. um, just because how crazy it was at that time. Mm-hmm. She was definitely the the responsible one in the family. Yeah, you know, my dad was definitely wild the way he grew up, and uh, the, the the person he is is just by nature. He's just a wild human, right? Uh, and she's she came, she came from more of a. Uh, and not so, you know, more of a, a nuclear family household. Right. She, she grew up in Delaware, and my dad grew up in Miami. So, mm-hmm. uh, just a, di- a different different worlds colliding. Sure. 
So you're 16, moved around a bunch. Um, did you did you finish high school down there? Or, um, yeah, moved out at 16, lived with my buddy in Fort Lauderdale, um, lived in his garage and slash spare room, mm-hmm. and uh, finished, finished high school uh, on my own, uh, worked a couple jobs. I was going to uh, ROTC at the three years ROTC in high school. I was a Marine Corps ROTC. And I actually loved that structure. Like I, I really like uh, just mesh well. I just needed discipline. I needed like some structure, and I like ha- were, was there. Were for you? Me. A, I mean, were you a pretty dialed in kid? Like say in that 14, 15, 16, were you getting in much trouble, or were you like I know you're moving around a lot, and obviously a lot of kids would struggle with all that. But were you? Sounds like you were maybe pretty dialed in, and you knew. I was dialed in, but I was also hanging out with bad people. Yeah. So I was kind of a shit kid. I was like, you know, doing some illegal stuff. I sold drugs. I robbed, you know, boats and cars. And I was doing things, in my opinion, that I thought I should, uh, I needed to survive, you know? Right, you're yeah, product of your environment. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. and, and I fully admit what I did wasn't right, but um, it was just it, the territory everybody was doing right. it. And I just, it felt right. Um, right. but I still had the, the thought to be like, do not drop out of high school. Don't get in trouble. Don't ex- get expelled. I was getting in fights a lot. Um, mm-hmm. it was a very, um, um, the, there was, a, it was a very, uh, diverse cultural, whatever you want to call it, high school. I mean, it was, a, it was a lot of different ethnicities and, mm-hmm. um, so it was some, sometimes it was a struggle just to like walk to class without being assaulted, you know? So were you a pretty big kid? I mean, you're a big guy now. Did you grow? Were you a kid that grew? Lanky. Yeah. Lanky basketball player. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't like be picked on. I didn't like, I didn't like to take shit from anybody. So I just, I didn't. Um, Mm -hmm. so I got into a lot of fights, you know, and, and, so it probably made me look like a bad person. I probably had a little chip on my shoulder because, you know, being picked on and, and being uh, going home to like a broken home and like having that stuff. And you're just going back and forth from like, you know, uh, hard schooling and then, you know, right. you go, to, go home and it's, it's chaos. So it was just like, yeah, I was like ready to get out of Florida. Yeah. <laughs> I was for 16, sure. 17, graduated at 18. And I was like, ready to get in the, in the military. Yeah. So what made you, was it a recruiter like coming to school or had you seen like read books or what, what it was, it was definitely the ROTC. Like I had a Vietnam vet that was, that was our, uh, teacher, I got ROTC instructor, whatever you want to call it. And mm-hmm. he was recon Marine had a, had tons of ribbons on his chest, jump and dive, um, you know, bubble, and wings and this guy was just like you know tough as woodpecker lips yeah just uh, just had his stuff together you know and I just really looked up to him and um he talked to us like human beings you know he wasn't like you know right. like a, a, some teachers that I that I went to school with so it was I definitely looked up to him and and I thought you know this could be a very good choice you know get some structure get some discipline and obviously I needed it I was getting in fights I was doing illegal stuff. I'm only, I'm a teenager. I, you know, I definitely needed something in my life because obviously I'm not getting it somewhere. Well, and it takes that, uh, like takes that 
need to survive kind of out of your right. hands, right? Like all of a sudden, I mean, you're kind of somewhat taken care of or decisions are being made for you, told what to do. Like, um, but you also have that stability of place of sleep and mm-hmm. structure and definitely I could see where that would. Yeah. I think the day I enlisted or when I talked to the instructor, I think I had $20 in my pocket. Yeah. It was all going to fix my, my shitty 1990 Thunderbird, um, paying rent and groceries and just contributing to the household I was living in as much as possible. And so at the end of the week or whenever I got my paycheck, it was just, right. You know, I had breadcrumbs left. So it was actually a perfect time. Like I just, I was ready mentally. What year was that? 2001. And was that, was that pre nine <laughs> 11? So funny thing. Um, so I joined one month before nine 11. Wow. So I was in boot camp and nine 11 happened. Um, our drone instructors told us this, what happened, but we didn't have in, in Marine Corps boot camp. You don't have newspapers. You don't get access to TVs. You don't talk to anybody. So Where was boot camp at? This is in the Paris Island, South Carolina. Okay. So, you, you can, they can tell you anything they want. They can tell you that, you know, Sasquatch is walking around outside and, and you're like, uh, I guess we'll take your word for it. So that's kind of how we were when they told us about nine 11. We actually, th- we all, you know, when we went back to our, to our racks and had a little bit of time to, to converse, we, we thought it was like a, a, uh, like a drill or, or like, like a mind game, like thing a mind or... game. And we're like, okay, okay, let's. Let's just see how this plays out. And then they started calling people in from that were, that were from New York. Oh man! And they were like, "Hey, call home." And then and we we confirmed. So it it got real real fast. Yes. So I I joined to be an infantry guy. I wanted to just you know I was a really big into uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rambo and <laughs> yeah. and all the action movies, eighties actions and nineties. I was just all in. I just loved that. Yeah. You know, uh, macho type. I was just like, this is cool stuff. And I wanted to learn how to do it. Right. Um, and I didn't have any idea that I was going to go to war. I didn't join to go and like go to, to other countries. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't my like idea. I just wanted to go and like do cool stuff. And I, after four years of being a Marine, I'd be like, yeah, I blew up this and I sh- shot right. a bunch of guns. And, and then I, and then I have, like you said, security and, had a place to stay and I had a little bit of money in the bank and mm-hmm. go, go to school. They get you the GI bill and right. Yeah. So I, I just felt like I had this plan and then you know, things kind of took off. Yeah, no doubt. So how long, I mean, at that point, how, how long was boot camp, and then how long until like you're all of a sudden like things are, I mean, I'm sure things got real. I'm sure immediately at that, like all of a sudden you're training, that's gotta be, I've heard some of the other guys talk about that were maybe through their training and more active duty or whatever. And like, all of a sudden, like everything just got really real all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. But, and of course I've also heard guys say like, they all thought they were going to go to war the next day and kick somebody's ass. And then it took a while to like get that all spun up. Yeah. I would say the latter. Um, so I went to three months of boot camp. um, went, came back home, did a month of recruiting assistance which actually saved my life. It, I w- if I went straight to my MOS school, which is basically a military occupational specialty where you learn how to do your job, mm-hmm. that was on that was in uh, Camp Lejeune. So if the timing worked out, if I didn't do that recruiting assistance, I would have went to uh, and got orders to Camp Lejeune on the East Coast. Oh, but because I did that month, 
it delayed. I went to Camp Lejeune a month later, late than than the rest of my boot camp class. You know, if we're gonna call it that, they all got stationed on the East Coast. I after SOI School of Infantry, that was another two months long. I got stationed and got orders to Camp Pendleton. Oh, I, in my opinion, I won the lottery. Like, yeah, I grew up on the East Coast. I, I I wanted to go to like California or Hawaii. I just wanted to go somewhere really nice and beautiful and right <laughs> worked out. Yeah. And be, uh, just, I wanted to relax and chill, but, uh, I just got real lucky and got those orders and we did almost a year workup. Uh, so got, I think it was January, 2000. Pull that thing over here. Yeah. Um, I think it was probably May or June of 2002 that I got orders and, to Camp Pendleton, and then we were in Kuwait J- January of 2003. Mm-hmm. So we got we got close to eight months of work up and training, and then mm-hmm. and got orders there. Mm-hmm. And how long were you kind of in Kuwait waiting before like the invasion? Yeah, just a couple months. Really? So we're just kind of sitting in the sandbox in these big tents. What's that like? I mean. What's that like sitting? Because, I mean, I've, I've never served. I've never been in any of that situation. But what's the feeling? I mean, I, I got to imagine there's some variations between guys being super excited, terrified, mm-hmm. um, like you've trained for it. But you're still like – it's weird because when that all ha- – when 9-11 happened, I was, you know, 20 years old. And um, you don't think you're a kid. you. 20 and you think you're, oh, you're out of high school and you're like an adult now, but like I'm now I'm 40 and I look back, I'm like, man, 19 years old. Like it's crazy how young everybody is that are doing that. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to just say disclaimer. It's hard to put like, remember how I felt at 19, you know, I'm 38 now. Right. But I do remember that we were really like pumped, you know, mm-hmm. like we were in that mode of like, these guys, you know, terrorists attacked us. Let's go kick some ass. Right. That was our mindset. And being 19, you're, you're just full of testosterone and you're, 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 you're stupider than rocks. And you and also know you're on the best you, team. You, right. Like, you know, you have uh, the, you have all these brothers with you that are all badasses and. Right. You know, our capabilities, you know, you know what what the uh, jets in the sky can do, you know, what our Intel can do, you know, yeah. the tanks, you know, we just, we felt very confident going in. Sure. Um, I would say universal universally. We didn't like the, the whole uh, chemical warfare stuff. Mm-hmm. When we went into the over from Kuwait into Iraq, we were wearing full mop suits, mm-hmm. which was just like top and bottom jacket and pants basically to keep you protected from any kind of gas agent right they have we have gas masks on our legs we have gloves we have these big rubber boots that go over our combat boots so and you're in the freaking you're in the yeah 100 degrees 110 degrees so you're you're wearing these real heavy coats and pants gas masks helmet you know uh, it's just the worst scenario so that i think that was probably our biggest fear it's like nerve agent or mustard gas something you can't fight it's not a person it's not someone shooting at you it's it's just this invisible thing Mm -hmm. so that was probably uh, i think universally across the board we all were training for that we felt 
we had the right gear, you know, but at the same time, how do you train for gas? You you don't do any like dry runs. You just throw your gas mask on and you, hopefully your equipment works right? and you don't melt from the inside out. Right. But, um, other than that, I would say if it was talking about fighting and, and getting, you know, down to, you know, getting dirty with what we had to do, then we felt pretty confident. Yeah. So you're, uh, um, like with the invasion then, so you get your orders. I mean, talk us through that and how that kind of came down and then what happened and, yeah, like you mean in in Kuwait? Yeah, we well, yeah, and then just doing the actual yeah. invasion into Iraq. Yeah, so we we got put in these these holding camps in Kuwait where we just it was like small little fobs with really no borders. It's just open desert. Hmm. It's just like moon dust everywhere, hmm. and they set up these big canvas. Uh, I would say like circus tent styles they're just real long rectangle shape and that's what we slept on they had uh, plywood planks on the floor and we would just set up our sleeping mat in our in our sleeping bag and we just would be shoulder to shoulder you know on both both sides of the tent wow um and that's how we lived for a few months in kuwait just mm. training we would go out run in this moon dust you know nothing to look at it's flat you know you're like on a pool table and running whatever our platoon sergeant wanted us to run that day in right. the heat, carrying your, your gun. And I had a machine gun, an M249 saw. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to run with this thing in your hand. You're cradling this thing, and you're just hating life. And then, you know, you get cleaned up, go eat breakfast. <clears throat> Maybe we have a training scenario that day. We go out and do, uh, you know, IA drills where we're, you know, pretend we're getting contact and we – we start rushing towards them and we get ambushed from the, you know, right flank or left flank and we break contact and we're just doing this every day. Hmm. Go eat dinner, get cleaned up, repeat. Right. You know? And are you guys seeing at this point, you're not in boot camp anymore. Are you guys, well, and in those tents, I don't imagine it's not like a normal base where you got to like, a computer to go use to look at news or watch news or like at that time. No, you, you had a, I forgot what they're called, but they're basically these, these hard, uh, they're like archaic phones where they would have to like lock you in. You'd put a code in, uh, you have a code, you have have a card Mm -hmm. and you would call and it would be like a four minute, four second delay when you actually would reach somebody. Hmm. And I just, hated that whole deal waiting in line at the phone center and trying to go through all that to like have this awkward conversation with my mom or my girlfriend at the time. And, right. and <laughs> I was just, I avoided it. So I just did the letter thing. Yeah. And the letter turnaround was probably a month or two before the letter got there. And then another, maybe a month before it got back to you, it seemed like. Yeah. So I just did that. I wrote a bunch of letters, to everybody let them know I'm all right. And periodically I've just said, Hey, we're, doing this I'm, I'm doing fine right you know i just i was just kind of cut and dry with it i'm here um and is is uh i don't know maybe as as uh cold-hearted as it sound i just didn't really think about whatever other people thought about me being there my right. mom or my loved ones i just like i'm here i'm gonna do this if you get a, <laughs> a knock at your door and there's a someone telling you that i died then that so be it 
but right. I was 19 years old and right. that's, that was my mentality. So how do the orders come down that you're going to actually invade then and, and, and how long it, you know, it's just interesting from somebody that's never been there and to see like, and you were actually in the invasion. So like, you know, how many hours or days and, and what is that, you know, how did that come down? And then, and then what happened from there? Well, that's, that's coming from the top. I don't know exactly how they determined what day and why they did the day, right. you know. Um, I mean, from your perspective is what you were told. and We had a lot of false alarms. Did you? Yeah, so we, we would get these, wake up in the middle of the night, get your stuff, load on, load on the tracks. We had these big AAVs. Um, they're big armor vehicles. They have a... A 240, a 50 cal, and a Mark 19. They're, you know, nothing. It's not like a tank. It doesn't have like a big uh, tank uh, turret on it. It's just kind of a small turret on one side. Mm-hmm. But it's a troop carrier. And the whole hatch in the back opens up. And, and actually the top two hatches on the, on, the, on the top actually open up like a clamshell. And you can actually stand up from mm-hmm. within. So these were our vehicles to get into Iraq and, and the whole way all the way up to Baghdad. So there was multiple false alarms where they would get us up in the middle of the night or random times. And we would get all our stuff, pack it all up, everything. Shit. You and you uh, got your adrenaline's oh, got to yeah. be going like this, like, is time. this is it. This is it. Let's do it. And then we get on and then like stand down. Oh, like, oof. Okay. That happened a few times. And you know, um, there was this one time where they told us to do that and, it seemed more real than the others and mm-hmm. we're moving out. Wow. And it was all, you know, at night we went, uh, over the berm and from Iraq and, or excuse me, from Kuwait into Iraq. And you can feel like we're in the darkness, like inside this track sealed up, barely can see your hand in front of your face. You know, you, you can see the lights from the radios internally and, but it's super dark and all you hear is the engine, the tracks hitting the sand, the turret moving, you're getting updates from the uh, TC hatch telling you like where we're at. And so you're just, you feel so blind. You feel so like, are you just riding in in a barrel? You just run it riding in a barrel and you're, you're like on a saddle trench. There's someone in between your legs or to your left and to your right. So you, you feel like very in the dark. You don't know what's outside. You don't know what the terrain looks like or what they're mm-hmm. seeing or, you're just getting these updates from somebody else's secondhand, you know, from the radio. I got to, I got to think that, you know, and like you say, it's been a long time ago, but I got to think that, you know, people are thinking like, God, you're waiting to get hit by something or you're waiting to get bombed or you're waiting to get like, you know, when does the contact come? Like it's got to be so kind of stressful and, and scary just from the, the unknown standpoint. I mean, you're invading a country and, and of course the, you know, the capabilities that Iraq had that we were told, right. You know, you think it's like going to be, yeah. Any, any second now the whole place can light up. And yeah. You're, you're vaporized, you know, yeah. you know, it could, it, you had that, there was that word that came down, like scud missiles are flying over your head and yeah, you know, they have uh gas, you know, they have uh chemical right. agents. And so, yeah, at any, any second something could happen, but to be honest, you know, at that time we were so burnt out and I'm speaking from every, for everybody, but in, from, in my opinion, I w- we were just so burnt out. 
and training and just like, let's just get this over with. Right. We all had that. We all said it. We all griped and complained like, let's just do it. We're here. We flew across the world, you know, on C-130s and sleeping on our, on our rucks and uncomfortable cargo nets to get here. And now we're here. We've been in the moon dust, sweating our butts off and, and running around like madmen. Like, let's just do it. Yep. You know, so honestly, I think we were relieved to be going into Iraq. Sure. You know, because it was, now it's a change up. Now we're actually working. Right. Versus training. Right. Yeah. So what was that like rolling in? And um, I mean, like I'd said, we we just barely started talking about this earlier. And I was like, let's do a podcast. But, you know, I asked you earlier and then we kind of stopped. But I'd said, you know, I've heard that basically at, in the beginning there, we pretty much walked in. It just didn't yeah. have a lot of resistance. Was that the way for you? Yeah. Yeah. So our mission for my company was to take over a gas and oil refinery. So it was an open uh, refinery with, with pipes and tanks, holding tanks for gas and oil. And basically we wanted to secure this compound, this giant refinery, so they wouldn't blow it up. Because mm-hmm. that's what they did. That they they did in the last war. They just they nuked all the pipes, and they just had you know millions and millions of gallons burning going mm-hmm. into the you know on the waste. So that was our mission. When as we rolled up, the sun was starting to come up. So now we can take our night vision off, and we're patrolling up on foot. We dismounted from those tracked vehicles, so we're all online, and every like. 20 guys there was a tracked vehicle and then another stretch of 20 guys and then you know a tracked vehicle and we were just rolling about you know walking speed mm-hmm. up to this thing and there's trenches dug with um you know you can see signs of life you know stools and helmets and weapons and uh like i said like some of the like bunkers had cigarettes still burning or the smell of cigarettes and the mm. smell of people and the smell of food and yeah, kettles burning and tea in cups. And it was a very eerie feeling. You're walking into this, you know, you got a, I got a machine gun in my hands with 200 rounds, right. you know, a belt and, and I'm just looking around and it's crickets. Yeah. But so wild. Yeah. You feel the life though. Like someone was just here. It's very, it's spooky, you know? Yeah. Um, and we, we pushed all the way through this, this refinery and, myself and my platoon and the rest of my company we were up on this on this very corner of the refinery basically the i would let's call it the the top left corner Mm -hmm. we're facing north so myself and my my squad and my platoon were on the very front corner of this refinery holding security and we're on this berm Mm -hmm. and where i was laying to my left was this straight road you know, just going just north and south. And we just sat on this berm and we just were told, hey, orders to just hold. We're just going to hold security. And at this point, the sun's up. It's full morning. You know, we put away our night vision. We're yep. laying in the prone on this berm. Um, the berm was probably three or four feet tall. It was uh, maybe 15 wide. Just mm-hmm. as, And this road ran right through it. Um, and we probably were sitting there an hour, maybe more, before our snipers to our right, you know, yelled down to us, say, Hey, we have some movement out there. It was a couple clicks out. It was a ways out. They can barely see the, 
the prism of the you know the 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 figures moving and right and and you know so so we were just like okay well if they come this way they'll come this way if not whatever we're not really trying to engage anybody they're not we're just hanging out right here but you know luck strikes us they get into these white trucks and they just start heading towards us real slow like a slow roll Mm -hmm. and so we get word hey if these guys come to us tell them to stop uh, tell them to get out. We did all this POW training and we had interpreters with us. We even did a lot of language training, like basic, like, Hey, stop, lay down, turn around stuff like basic commands. Right. So we had all this, you know, um, I don't want to call them POWs, but just, uh, uh, just anybody that we would have to take a hostage to, or like, a not a hostage, uh, somebody that gives up or what? Yeah. Just, just, yeah. I, I, I a prisoner, I guess you want to call them, but, uh, anybody that we needed to, uh, just take under our supervision, you know, right. and, and we would ask them questions who, if they, even if they were just civilians, we just want to find out, Hey, where, where are these sure Iraqi Republican guard? Where, where's the army at? Where, who, who, who was here? So we had all that training. We weren't there to like treat anybody bad. Right. Um, just make sure they didn't have weapons, make sure everybody was safe. Just basic. Uh, yeah. It makes sense. You got to be able to communicate. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I did. I got up off, you know, from the prone positions, stood in the road, had my gun pointing down. I'm telling them to slow down, you know, waving my hand and about, I would say maybe a hundred yards out the, you know, they had a white flag hanging out the windows, you know, surrender. And, um, they dropped that flag and, they, they gunned it towards us and just started shooting at us, you know, like probably six guys in the truck, just full on AK. And or one guy, I think one guy was in the bed of the truck that popped up with an RPK and mm-hmm. just started shooting at us. And so I jumped back down behind the berm and then, you know, just erupted gunfire. Everybody right. my, I think I got off maybe a hundred rounds before they got past us because they were so close and they just kind of caught up, caught us off guard. Right. And, that that truck as it passed us it just went off the road into the ditch and then almost rolled over and mm-hmm. everybody in in the vehicle was was yeah. killed almost yeah. immediately just because the amount of people that were shooting at it right um and the second vehicle um did the same thing but it was it wasn't as close behind it was actually another 100 meters back so we, you were, had some, at yeah, that point, at that like, point we're like, okay, game yeah, on. Right. And they did the same thing, but they barely made it even anywhere close to us. And there right. was probably another six or seven guys in that vehicle. Um, so that's basically the first like experience of now actual war. And it's a yep. couple guys in a couple trucks. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And we thought we were just going to take these guys prisoner. You know, we're going to have, right. we're just going to search them, search their, their intel and maybe get some information from them. It turned out we just ended up getting into a gunfight with 12 guys and yeah. killing all of them. The crazy part about it that I didn't know until after the second truck, we shot the truck and everybody in it is that we got a casualty. My platoon oh, wow. commander, my lieutenant was on the radio. He was the only one that was actually standing up when we were shooting he was bent over on the radio and a round hit him underneath his flak jacket and hit and severed his liver. Oh, wow. So he was the first casualty in the whole war to die wow. in Iraq. His name was Lieutenant Shane Childers. Mm. 
So you got it. Now you're talking about like mindset and how you felt. So I really remember this feeling more than anything. I was 19 years old. I just helped kill 12 guys. It's three hours into the war Mm -hmm. and my platoon commander is over there on his back, you know, um, holding his gut and he's bleeding out very fast. Mm -hmm. And it was very, I had this like really crazy emotion mix emotion of being pissed off that these guys like tricked me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like kind of responsible that I, they got the jump on me. Mm -hmm. And I also was like super, uh, afraid that I did something wrong. Like I just helped, I just shot 200 rounds into 12 guys and ripped them apart. And I'm 19 years old. And I was like, did I do the right thing? Right. So I have, you know, I just first time I killed somebody and I have these emotions and then I have my lieutenant behind me, like, you know, dying. And right. then, so you, you got everybody like worrying around. It's like this crazy shit. Like, man, this is, this is real. Mm-hmm. And so we call him a medevac and get him on the bird. He, he passed, he's expired and it was really sad. And we, we start doing this whole, like, all right, let's come together. This is after we like search the trucks and get, get those bodies searched. And, um, actually one guy survived. He jumped out of the truck and we actually took him prisoner. Um, he was shot seven times, Hmm. one in the face, five in the chest, one in the groin. Hmm. And he lived for I think multiple hours and we, we searched these guys and they had like all kinds of pills and I think hmm. methamphetamines and stuff that like keep them going. Just to keep them going. Right. I've I heard that, so. that they like pass that stuff out just to, yeah, they all had these weird pills on them that I remember, but yeah. I don't, I didn't like, you know, ser- like search the pills and we'll find out what it was, but you it's didn't odd. taste them. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> like, yeah. Just try them later that night. Um, no, so, but it seemed like they were, they were on something because it, like this guy, you know, seven rounds in his body and he's still moving around and yeah. walking. It just didn't seem right. Um, but you know, I, I remember feeling like this, holy crap, we're three hours into the war. One of our guys just died. You're right. Uh, we just killed 12 guys, you know, um, and you start doing the math and we're here for how many more months? Right. You know, um, we, we were not even like, you know, 40 miles into the, right. into the country. We were going all the way up to Baghdad, which is hundreds of miles. So it's like, wow, this is going to be real. Mm-hmm. So this is my 19 year old brain, you know, spinning wheels for sure. So yeah, that was basically, that was day one. Wow. That's insane. And it's crazy how it changed so fast from like, wow, we might just cakewalk right through all this to having a casualty, like just that right. quick. Yeah, yeah. Super confident. Let's go get after it. Let's, let's go kick. Some and, you, and I'm sure, especially like you say, as a teenager, I mean, literally a freaking teenager, mm-hmm. but even the guys young twenties or whatever. And like, you feel like you're not going to lose anybody. I mean, you're invincible and y'all know there's that chance, but I'm sure you're also confident enough in yourself and your teammates and the power of who we are as a military that like, yeah. we're going to just, and you never, I'm sure you never think it's going to be you or your, your group of guys. And yeah, you have this cloak of, uh, this invincibility and mm-hmm. you felt like we, I just felt very confident going in and, and that's so early to get that slap in the face. Mm-hmm. Like 
you figure the guys that go over now and it's been year after year after year and like it's also real and everybody knows it and and I'm sure there's a lot of guys that go on a lot of might go on a whole deployment without losing anyone. Absolutely, yeah. For months. Mm-hmm. And you guys are it's hours old. Right. Yeah, and and like you say I can see that um it's easy to see how you can immediately start to like want to put it on yourself, you know. Yeah, you just have like I mean a, like I said a mix of just and and you're thinking about it for days and weeks after it and it's like, you know, your your maybe your emotions change throughout the days and the weeks sure. and the months. But uh, but also, it, it was most of our first experience with death up yeah. close. So um, even our senior Marines didn't go to combat, and you know the staff staff NCOs, and there were some that went to the first Gulf War, but I don't think it was like that intense in their face, like face to face shooting at somebody that you could see the color of their eyes and their, you know, that seemed to be a. Again, I'm not an expert on that, but like that seemed to be a lot more of an aerial battle, and also like we really walked over them fast, hard and fast. Yeah, and what was it 100 hours? Yeah, very. Like that. Seemed like it's easy for me to say little resistance, but there was in, definitely units that got more than mm-hmm. you know. But I guess this war, I mean, it's been 20 years now. You know, um, tw- um, yeah. Afghan has been 20 years. 20 but, years. Um. But that, and that's, and I've heard Andy, like Andy Stumpf talk about how, you know, like he was a pre 9-11 guy and, you know, there were a lot of guys that it was a pretty inactive time when it comes to actual combat, obviously, up until that point. So I can see how you're saying like even the guys who are your mentors, leaders hadn't, right. they weren't been there, done that guys like now they're all over the place. We were all cherry at that point. Yeah. In my opinion. I mean, there were a few that, that have seen combat and, and. Uh, Lebanon and mm-hmm. uh, they were in uh, uh, Somalia and and Kuwait. So they mm-hmm. there were some there, but it was sure it was very few and far between. And the majority were guys like myself, mm-hmm. nineteen, twenty, you know, some even eighteen years old. If they got into into the military early at seventeen. So, so where do you go from there? I mean, do you you guys sleep there? Do you do you then now? kind of just continue moving across or so you know I, I, it's been a few years since i thought about all this stuff but yeah we we picked up once we you know got the casualties we had a few other casualties that day some s- stepped on uh mines and mm-hmm. toe poppers and uh, unexploded ordnance were scattered everywhere and we've had we had a few casualties that day so once we got everything cleaned up so to speak uh we loaded back in those av tracks um, I don't know exactly where we went. You mm-hmm. know, like I said, we were very in the dark. Yeah. You know? Um, we found a place to sleep every night, you know, find a secure location. We had everybody in a 360 big circle mm-hmm. and every night, almost every night we dug, uh, grave trenches that were about, you just needed to dig them just so your body, when you lay down in them was not exposed from the surface so if a round mortar artillery went off it wouldn't right you know take your face off or your feet sticking up so every night my six foot five big ass had to <laughs> dig this giant wished you'd been born yeah, smaller exactly uh dig these giant grave trenches short guy next to you is already asleep yeah, oh yeah he's he's <laughs> been done so- 
you know, and, you know, we have these little e-tools and we're chopping at the hard clay. And that was every night, you know, we'd go to a new, <clears throat> pass through a new area, a new little town. There wasn't a lot of fighting in between mm-hmm. until we got to Baghdad. There was some scattered ambushes and we went, we passed by towns that were being, you know, another unit was occupying and they, we mm-hmm. were getting pop shots and snipers and this and that, but it didn't get really crazy until we got into Baghdad. How many guys are you traveling? I mean, how many in your platoon there? Well, in the platoon, 30, and then you have four platoons in a company. Mm-hmm. And then you ha- we had, I mean, dang, I don't know how many. We had multiple companies in, tra- in, in, in trace. So it was just a giant convoy of Humvees and tracks. Really? Wow. Yeah, and, fi- and five tons, seven ton vehicles. Wow. I was going to ask about that because, and forgive me for being like, I'm, I'm the guy that's like, you know, just don't, I just don't know a lot about all that stuff. And just a lot of the, whether it's terminology or how many guys are involved in this and that, you know? And so I'm definitely like, I'm just going to be like blatantly open and honest about like what I don't know. But, but, um, like I always thought about that, about like, how guys are sleeping and what you're eating and God, you know, it's just, uh, it's amazing to me of just the logistics of that many people moving across a foreign country that you're basically, you're invading. It's yeah. And it seemed very slow, you know, being the the person involved, Mm -hmm. you know, but I'm sure it was very fast and they probably had, they had, you know, we have all of our gas and we, all of our food and, water having to be resupplied as mm-hmm. we're moving up so tons of logistic craziness going on there so if a if a gas truck got hit and blew a tire or hit an ied well we have to chill out for as long as we can get gas again right or food i mean there was a week where we we were living off of one mre a day wow so we had to like for a week yeah so we had to just chill out and and wait for that resupply yeah. You know, and same with water. You got to conserve your water. We don't know when we're going to get a resupply. So drink what you need to drink, but don't, you're not, we didn't bathe for months. You know, yeah. we're baby wipes or you put a little water on a rag and you clean the, the right. important spots in your body. But uh, we didn't bathe until we got in Iraq, until we went to uh, one of Saddam's palaces and yeah. jumped in the pool. <laughs> Yeah, lived large. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so rolling into Iraq, what was that? Or rolling into Baghdad, what mm-hmm. was that? Um, so the night before, we were on the outside of the perimeter, and I remember we kind of got the short end of the stick on where my platoon was was in the line. We basically were in the dump of this of the of the outskirts of this part of Baghdad. Yeah. And so basically we had to occupy this little section because everybody else was tied in and it just so happens we got the the the, the trash pile. <laughs> literally. So, literally, yeah. And so we, you know, we try to move trash around and make your nice little bed so you can get comfortable and I remember this it was actually kind of hilarious to me but when I woke up in the morning cuz we we set up our our sleeping area that at night times so it was really dark. I remember waking up early, you know, the sun's just coming up. So a little bit of light in the sky and I'm rolling my sleeping bag up, stuffing it in the sack, rolling my ISO mat up, 
and underneath was a, a, a carcass of a dog. Oh, geez. Right underneath of me, but it was well past decomposed. It was just like a dried up skeleton with yeah. fur attached to it yeah. on its side. So it kind of, it oh kind of looked like a, like a fossil. Yeah. <laughs> so I just remember rolling this thing up and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That's There's got to be some moments occasionally where it's just like, huh. Yeah. Like the things you don't like, wouldn't, it, would, I wouldn't have put that in my 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 uh my book that I was gonna write exactly. about what war. It was just like. something that happened and I had a giggle. The guy next to me was like, God, that's disgusting. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like we've seen some gross things up to this point, but that I mean you sleeping on a dead dog all night. It's probably good to have like a chuckle at that point. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. I mean just, having a, a marine um mindset definitely helped like, because Clancy, you pick quite the bed. Exactly. Yeah. We we made fun of everything and each other and it, it definitely made it made time go by and yeah, it was just we had to have some sort of humor, right? But so that was the night before we packed up, and that whole day uh, we moved in position, and we still didn't move into Baghdad that day. But we waited until late night, and we stayed up all night, um, waiting for the word. And when we got the word, we went in, and and the route was over the Tigris River, and it was one of the bridges that basically went from outside of Baghdad into. Baghdad and this this bridge connected the the two and I just remember it was probably four and 30 in the morning before the sun came up and as soon as we buzzed over that bridge and I mean I mean it seems like as soon as our tracks touched on the other side of the you know where the water ended it was just on RPGs machine I mean the whole city was shooting it seemed like every building was shooting at us rockets were buzzing over our heads in every direction so it's nighttime so you see all you're seeing is tracers and flares and flashes and so my night my head seven bravos which is a dual um you know you have dual eye cups going into one tube um so not the greatest night vision that you can get but it worked and i had a saw like i said m249 saw with a 200 round drum and i had a a um, peck, a peck four, or excuse me, a peck two, mounted on the top of this thing, and basically I can shoot it from the hip because through my night vision I could see the laser and wherever the laser was at, that's yeah. where my rounds would go. So I actually really love that setup because mm-hmm. I didn't have to bring it up to my shoulder if I didn't have you know just mm-hmm. wherever that laser was, and it came really in handy and, and uh, really was like a Rambo type exactly <laughs> yeah yeah just from the hip you know, yeah shoot <laughs> so. It, it came in handy in, in, in the urban terrain because it was I was getting shot from all over, and I would just look at the flash, put the laser on the flash, and go to town. Um, and it just I would I felt very like all right, finally I can utilize this piece of machine properly. Yeah. Um, but like I said, we were just it seemed like we were going in circles. I felt so turned around because we're in these these vehicles. I'm standing in the track but like i said before the the top opens up like a clamshell and you can stand on the bench from the inside and your chest and head are out exposed yeah. on the top of the vehicle so me being six five i can stand up i can rest my saw on the vehicle and i had a really good shooting platform and i and i felt my whole body was protected the mm-hmm. only thing exposed was my upper body mm-hmm and we were just buzzing around Baghdad and trying to, I think we, I felt like we were just lost. 
you know, we would make a wrong turn. We'd have to turn around. And at the time we're just getting shot up. We have our, our packs are hanging off the side of the vehicle. So they're just getting full of holes and, you know, RPG would hit and then five packs and, would blow and off. Do you have an objective of like, this is the point we're trying to get right. to it tonight. And yeah, are people just following you? You're following somebody else. Like, so I, we, yeah. So basically we got a foothold. We took over the palaces cause they're big enough to hold us at giant walls really good little stopping points. So we took over one of the palaces. I think he, excuse me. I don't know how many palaces he had in Baghdad, but I know there was multiple. Mm -hmm. We took over one of them. There was a bunch of commandos that were occupying it, shooting at us from the roof. We get rid of all the targets in the palace. We go into the inside the walls. We resupply, offload our casualties, get water, get ammo, suit back up, go back out. And we did that all day. And go back out, just basically driving around. Going back out. Our next mission was a takeover a mosque. Okay. But, again, getting directions, not being able to go down the, the turn you thought you can go down because they have a barricade. So we're trying to find a new route. So basically we're just joyriding around downtown Baghdad getting shot from every direction. There's people above us jumping over like roof to roof, shooting down on us. There's people throwing grenades down on us and everything you can think of. Man. Chaos. Yeah. We pass, I remember passing by this grave or excuse me, this, uh, the cemetery and there was a, a wall around it, a small wall with a little, maybe two foot gated, uh, steel rod fence. And, Inside of it was were all the 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 headstones and whatever you want to, like these little concrete um, memorials of the of the dead, mm-hmm. but there were also people inside the cemetery hiding behind these things, and they would just it was like whack a mole. They would pop up, shoot at us. We were shooting back. I mean, you're shooting at headstones and, and grave sites and blowing up like crazy because there's just people shooting at you from everything. From every really? building, it didn't matter if it was an apartment building, um, a factory, a mosque, a, pl- a pl- place of prayer and religion, cemetery, they were everywhere. And so we just were just trying to survive. Yeah. trying. I mean, guys were getting hit in the head with RPG rockets. I remember this one guy behind me got hit in the head with an RPG. The RPG did not go off. It broke. Um, the propellant the stick basically that propels the rocket dropped inside of the track and was spinning around like a, like a firecracker. The, the explosive, the, the, the main part of it was just sitting there. So we're throwing those out because we're, we got nothing but explosives, ammo, gas, diesel, like all kinds of stuff inside the tracks. We have that. We're working on casualties. Guys are getting shot. Um, you know, and what I'm doing, being a saw gunner, I have, I have, I've at this point shot thousands of rounds, changing out barrels because they're getting hot. I'm shooting at anything that is an American. Yeah, trying to keep people's heads down. If I see a movement in that window, the whole building I shot up. Yeah, I didn't at that point. We were getting hit so hard. We needed we needed a breath. Right. So that was my mission, and I just. Everything and everything went right. down. 
Yeah, you were just trying to give yourself some breathing yep. room and space. Yeah, we were we were definitely taking casualties. We were getting, we were, you know, it was a matter of time before one of those RPGs hit directly inside or, uh, you know, a grenade landed inside and then we were burning to death or, you know, just we didn't want that. So we were just trying to play very offensive. Right. And, uh, get you know, bring heavy gunfire wherever we, if we heard it to the left, there was a thousand, two thousand rounds going off immediately to the left. Heard it to the right, same thing. Right, right. Until we got to that mosque, and then things kind of died down a little bit. I remember. I don't remember a lot about about that time exactly, but I do remember. Um, you know, probably the morning after when you guys got to the palaces. I remember how powerful those images were on the television of like, mm-hmm. there's our boy standing in his palace. Like, and it seemed like it was overnight for mm-hmm. us. Like it was like really fast, you know, and, um, incredible, like sense of pride and amazement of how, like, even though you guys are still going through a lot of that stuff over here, it's like, well, shit, we're already in this palace. Right. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, man, this isn't going to last, this isn't going to last 48 more hours. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you kind of figure if you're all the way to that point, like, well, we about got it one, you know, um, it's, uh, like I can't even, it's just so incredibly mind boggling that like we're sitting here 20 years later, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about it, if someone invaded America and they destroyed our army and we don't have any more military, basically everybody would just pick up arms and they'd be militia everywhere. Which is why it's a good uh, argument for the Second yeah, Amendment. Exactly, for <laughs> sure. And then that's what they did. You know, when we destroyed their army, the Iraqi Republican Guard, and they didn't have uh, any kind of armor, no tracks on ground. They didn't have any Air Force. No, You know, we, we took out everything. Well, if you're going to still be a part of the resistance, you're just you're going to take off your uniform, you're going to wear plain clothes, and you're just going to be militia. And that's basically where the 20 years came in. And that's where it's so... That's where my, and I think a lot of people feel this way of like, there's several problems I have with a lot of what's going on, but um, one, sending television crews along the way, because mm-hmm. now you got guys like you, okay, so you shoot up the whole building and then they go in there the next day and they find three dead families. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to, what does that look like and how does that play want. on TV? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, and... Um, I, I honestly, yeah, we had it definitely had a media, we had a journalist with us. We had a photographer with us. We didn't have media. We didn't have like video. We didn't have CNN. We didn't have these yeah. people, whatever you want to call them. We just had a journalist that was a local journalist in Orange County and we had a photographer there and, and he didn't do anything that was, he didn't make, he didn't paint us to be any kind of buddy that besides what we were there to do. And well, and his life's at risk too if he's of there. Course. I mean, holy shit! It was always at risk. I mean, he, yeah. everybody was getting shot at. But I didn't care. My yeah. my my mission was to was to if I'm getting shot at, if you're there to fight me, I'm there to kill you. Right. That's all. And 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 if uh and there's plenty of children and plenty of women and plenty of innocents that died. Right. I didn't. None of us wanted to kill innocent people. Right. That wasn't why we were there. No. Did we probably shoot them and they died? <clears throat> of course. Right. But uh, definitely not our mission, not our goal. Um, 
but when you are shooting the type of the amount and and the and, right. and just the type of weapons we're shooting, there's going to be casualties. There's going to be you know people that are unfortunately stuck in between. Yeah, and I'm talking really more not at that point in the war, but like later on, the years yeah. later, where it really turned into it got ugly. A, yeah, a lot of media, and then also the whole, you know, in my opinion, it's a it's obviously it's a gigantic decision to decide to send people into war because you know those women and children are going to die your own soldiers are going to die mm. like um it's going to be bad all the way around and so when you do it it really should be in that way where it's 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 full on war and we're there to win as fast as possible and then be done where um the extended like because that's really what's been happening it seems like for the next 15, 20 years, guys driving around waiting to be shot at before they can shoot somebody. And right. and that's a that's a feeling that I just can't even imagine because you're it's it's just gotta be incredibly stressful and difficult to deal with of like you can't really go and do your job until like you've clearly been shot at. And that and also they you know, the enemy knew that they can use that against us. So right. an example is that they start an ambush. We return fire. There may be some casualties that get killed. Maybe, let's say, hypothetically, they kill them and plant the, plant the evidence. Yeah. But they because the, the media is there, they run to a, a media source and say, hey, they shot at us. We didn't shoot at all. And look, we have... And there's Al, Al Jazeera that sure. they're paying to be there. To, exactly. Or telling to be there. So you can use that propaganda, that media manipulation for for your uh, purpose and, and to further your goal. And they've done it. a really good job of like, I feel like, of watching our news and then yep. playing the game. Exactly. That's what I mean. They, yeah. They're they're playing on those heartstrings. Right. So they knew they're like, okay, we, we can make this out to in our favor. Right. Right. And it happened many times. I mean, there was units that got kicked out of country. There were people getting court-martialed, people get uh, put in prison. I mean, we've, we've seen it on the media, you know, people getting pardoned and uh, war crimes and this and that and the other. And honestly, I mean, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give my opinion on anybody else's, you know, what they, what they chose to do, but I, I can just, just give you opinion on what happened with me is I'd never saw anybody do anything out of any kind of uh, malicious like act or murderous act or anything right. where they wanted to just get, get off on hurting or killing. Right. We were there. And the only time I saw people react was when they had to, mm-hmm. when a car was barreling down at them, uh, when a person wouldn't stop moving towards them, when we were getting fired at, when a whole city is shooting at you from every direction and you got people bouncing up and down, it could be kids or women that want to just like see the action. Mm-hmm. Guess what? We're you're, you're shooting at it. Your people are shooting at us from everywhere. What is, what, what would you do? Right. You know? So it's like, Hey, you do what you got to do to make sure everybody gets out of here, you know, with, with, right. With the same holes that we came in. Right. And, and do the, and do the work, you know, do it, do it and have, have your, um, integrity in check at the end of the day. And we all did like everybody I served with, that was our mindset. I believe that for sure. Um, 
So you, you guys are kind of in that crazy, that crazy time period. How long did that last before like it seemed like sort of, because you can't just get a hold on. I mean, the other option is obviously you just airstrike the shit out of all of it, but the, obviously you can't, you're talking about apartment buildings and homes and businesses and like, we're not, obviously we're, we weren't there to just flatten the entire country and right. kill everyone. So how long until like you guys started kind of feeling like you gained some control where it wasn't like you're explaining where you're just driving around. It's just okay, constant yeah. fire. So that, that day started, like I said, like at four in the morning, early morning. It didn't, it, we, I think we went back to the palace evening, mm-hmm. 6 PM. I want to say. So we were in combat from over 12 hours. And then we went back to the palace, relaxed, And from there, we basically just held up in a defensive posture, sending out, um, reconnaissance patrols, presence patrols for the next couple weeks to a month. Um, there we just kind of refit, you know, wanted to get the rest of the, the forces to catch up, get our casualties out of there, um, have a, some sort of like place where we're not just moving every night. Right. The first time we stayed for multiple days and we mm-hmm. were sleeping, we set up defensive postures. We were, we were, we put up, uh, uh, fighting holes around along the river where the palace was even on top of the palace, all around the walls. We just basically held our position until we were getting our next orders. So, right. and, and every day was a, you know, it could have been, let's go out and do a presence patrol. We can, Go out and let's, there's a vehicle, like I remember there was a big truck that we had full of Scud missiles, big semi, and we had to go and get that, secure that, and we brought it back to the palace. Um, so, What's it like walking in those palaces and like the first time you walked in there and like how, how unbelievably surreal and... Um, I wish I can tell you it was nice, but it wasn't. It was like blowing the shit. I mean, there was, yeah, you know, it got hit before we went there. So the main part of the palace was, was basically caved in his, the main palace, uh, the main bedroom where he slept. Uh, it was, I would say it was exposed to the, to the sky. It had a huge hole in the, in the roof. It was collapsed in. It was very unstable, but it was also where, you know, where Saddam and, his people stayed sometimes, which it was, you know, there was gold toilet seats. There was just big crystal chandeliers where there were silk sheets on these giant beds, big, uh, entertainment rooms, you know, big giant pool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, everything marble and white Yeah, and, you know, as, 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 uh, it's gotta be, um, uh, was it kind of st- staggering the difference in like you see the difference in class and level he was living and then like going around everywhere else like um it just seems like such a an amazing difference in just level of living compared to like we would see here in the u.s i mean yeah you got fancy homes but there's Mm -hmm. other fancy homes around those homes that it just would yeah it was over the top yeah like the palaces were just like so gaudy and and tacky in my opinion, you know, um, there were definitely nice homes in, in Baghdad. There were mansions and, and, and I would say more moderate 
mansions, but you know, he obviously wanted to make sure people knew that that was his place for sure. You know, yeah. And it, it stretched the property stretched probably a half a mile mm-hmm. from one side to the other along the river. And the walls were 16, 20 feet, you know, concrete walls that basically, wow. you know, yeah. encapsulated it. So fortress. Yeah, it was a fortress and, uh, yeah, it was very over the top. Yeah. Didn't seem like a very, to me, like a place where you, you'd want to call home. It didn't, didn't right. seem cozy to me at all. Um, but yeah, it was definitely surreal. Like the, that's like, a, like I said, the first time we, we took a shower, if you want to call it that, or a bath, we jumped in the pool and washed our hair. It was just like mud coming out of our hair. And yeah. God, that had to have felt good. Amazing. And <laughs> we had these sheep shears, these me- mechanical ones, not, you know, not electric where you had to like squeeze the handle for the actual shears to shift and mm-hmm. you can cut hair. So we would take turns cutting each other's hair and shaving each other's head with these mechanical, uh, <laughs> sheep shears Yeah, and, you know, giving each other these horrific haircuts with them. And yeah, you know, we would actually like scrape, take the backside of our blades on our K bars and scrape the like cheddar cheese that was like growing on our scalp. From just like the months of, you know, not showering and just dirt and caked up whatever skin. And uh, it was good just like, you know, put on a, and and that was actually the time where we were allowed to take over off our mop suits, the the gas suits and put on. So you're in your gas suits this entire time. exactly. Holy shit. Yeah. And and these suits, these, these top and bottom are like lined with charcoal. Yeah. And it has like this mesh inner that kind of keeps the charcoal in there. And at this time in theory, in theory. <laughs> so, I mean, they're not supposed to be worn. Like we wore them. They're supposed to be taken out of a package in case of an attack, mm-hmm. put on, donned, cinched up. At this point we have holes in our elbows. We have holes in the knees. They've been right. worn. We've yeah, been, they're worthless. Yeah, they're worthless. So, I mean, it's, and they realized it. So finally we, we shed those disgusting things and we were actually able to put on, you know, we take out of, if the, you know, if your pack survived the onslaught of the, mm-hmm. the ambushes, you were able to pull out these fresh camouflage <laughs> uh, desert camis and throw them on. And it was just like the best thing. I just remember just feeling like a million bucks. Yeah. You, you know, something that's light. It, 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 it can breathe. Uh, it, it didn't smell like trash. Right. Yeah. Jeez. So over the months, I mean, you guys, did you finally, I mean, at what point did you finally get to a military base and start to establish? I mean, was that, how long did that take before it started to, like you guys had a real actual base to work out of? Yeah, I would, the, the follow on weeks after that, we got orders down to Aldiwanima and I can't tell you, I'd have to look at a map, but I think it's south west of Baghdad where it was, we took over a Iraqi military base. Okay. And it was perfect for us to be there. It had barracks. It had all one story buildings, but you know, places for us to stay. It had a cover. It had, it had a border around it. It was basically just set up perfectly. There were, wasn't anybody, no villages nearby that would bother us. Right. So we were, we stayed in Aldiwanima and took over this little military base ran a few patrols out of there and we stayed there until we left. Really? And that was basically the end of that first deployment. So how long was that deployment then? That was, we left the end of May 
and we got there in January. Okay. So just shy of six months. Yeah. Um, what was that feeling coming home? Was it, in, was it like, do you feel it like you really incredibly like accomplished something amazing? Um, was it, I would imagine there was a lot of guys that maybe didn't want to quite go home because the job wasn't maybe finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's mixed emotions, but how was it for you? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly it. We had guys that wanted to stay and, there, there was definitely more fighting to be done, and there was also guys that really wanted to get out of there. I mean, not everybody was suited for war. Not everybody for sure wanted to do that. They signed the papers, like myself, before nine uh, eleven, and they probably were like, "I just want to be in the military. I don't want to go to war." Right, or I want a GI Bill, or exactly whatever. I want to I mean, travel the world. Yeah, whatever. and somebody'd be crazy or an idiot to think that. I mean, let's face it when a recruiter comes into the school, they're not like, Hey, you're going to march around in charcoal, get your ass shot off and you're going right. to sweat to death and grow cheese on your head. Yeah. They, I mean, they, it might work now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back then it probably wouldn't work, but, but it's more about GI bill and you can sure. pick your job and yeah. And you're also a lot of people that are, that need to get out of the situation like myself. That's a kind of a, that's you find that to be kind of a common denominator between yeah. your fellow Marines and, other branches is you're not enjoying the nine to five or you're you don't want to go to college it just doesn't doesn't suit you you know I didn't I didn't enjoy high school it was a it was a battle I wanted to get away from my surroundings and the military is amazing for that so um and there was all those kind of people there with me they all had their own story their own right you know well and honestly these days the college has become so unattainable for so many people, even people with parents who are both making a decent living. Oh, crazy debt these um, kids are having. Yeah, so, you know. I don't know what's worse, going to war or, or coming out with $150,000, $300,000 debt. Seriously, I mean, it's a, uh, it, it's just so burdensome, especially if you come out with that kind of debt and, uh, and, you haven't actually even finished your degree or you've dropped out or you come out with a, you know, art literature, whatever degree, and you realize you can't even find a job in it, you know? And yeah, so, I mean, the military definitely is a, is still a very viable option for kids who are just looking to try to figure out how they're going to pay that bill. Yeah. And anybody listen, I mean, I don't regret anything I did. Like, yeah. I would do it a hundred times over. I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and say like, Oh, you know, I had it bad. No, I, I enjoyed it. I did eight years in the military. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some of the, the amazing humans in my life because of that. Right. To this day, I have, like, I'm in August, I'm going on a a reunion with the guys I've, I serve with in, in the story I just told. Mm. And we're, get, we're getting together in Tahoe. And, you know, a lot of us have, from that story, have passed away. Mm-hmm. Suicide. Um, we just had... A couple of weeks ago, one die in a car accident. Mm. Like we're not getting any younger. Right. Time time rolls on. So I cherish these these brothers that I serve with, and they're they're family to me. They're they they know everything about me, and mm-hmm. yeah, I just they I do not regret anything joining. You know, maybe it wasn't because of 
uh, I wanted to do it for more selfish reasons, you know, to right. travel, GI Bill, stuff like get away from my living situation. But it turned out to be the best thing I ever did. Sure. So you're a recon Marine. So how does that process, you know, um, compared to say a, a, a basic inf- infantry Marine or where does the training, where does that process like, how does that, how does that work for people that don't know? And, and, um, you went over there, were you infantry or were you a recon Marine at that point? Yes. Yeah, so I did three combat deployments to Iraq in mm-hmm. eight years. The first two were with infantry. The last one I was, I was a recon Marine. Okay. So the, to answer your first question, how do you become a recon Marine? There's a mm-hmm. few ways you can get a contract straight from boot camp, go to SOI, try out for um, selection. Mm-hmm. And if you pass all that, you get a slot into recon training course. Um, you, if, if you, if you pass all that, now you have the MOS 0321 mm-hmm. there, the way I did it, I went to my unit as an infantry guy. And then I went, I, I basically got permission from the unit that I was with to go over and take a selection mm-hmm. tryout. Kind okay. of right. There's, there's also lap moves. There's a couple different ways, but the way I did it was basically I, I heard they were doing open selections. It was a full day of just getting thrashed. And at the end of it, they do an interview. At this point I had two combat deployments. One night to Baghdad, what we just talked about. The other mm-hmm. one was in 2004. I did Fallujah, which is another heavy fight. Mm-hmm. So at this point I'm, I'm a corporal. Uh, I have two combat deployments. The second deployment, I was a squad leader. I led, you know, 10 guys into combat and successfully had an amazing deployment. Um, Nobody in my squad got hurt. Um, We found tons of weapons, did, you know, got rid of a lot of bad people. Um, And I was one of the youngest squad leaders in the company. Mm -hmm. I was 20 years old, leading people in the war. Right. So I, I kind of had a little bit of an ego, a little chip on my shoulder. I Two deployments. I'm almost at my four-year mark. Um, the, the My unit doesn't know what to do with me when we get back from Fallujah. I'm, I'm kind of at my unit. I have maybe eight, 10 months left on my contract, four years. So they say, go to the pool. You're a good swimmer. You have lifeguard qualifications. They, they sent me to the pool to finish out my time. While I was at the pool, all I did was work out. I swam. I ran. I just did calisthenics. I found out that first force reconnaissance was doing selections on the weekends as a joke. Me and my buddy that was with me at the pool, I was like, Hey, do you want to go and do this? He's like, yeah, yeah, screw it. Let's go do it. Yeah. One weekend we, we know we mustered up and showed up at four in the morning and, and took their selection. It was an all day event, multiple, it was two PFTs. Um, some, uh, we had to do, uh, survival in the in the water you get you put a ruck on you ruck all the way to the ocean eight miles there you get thrashed come back eight miles um and then you sit in front of a board and they ask you various questions why you want to be here and what why what are you doing and uh so after all that me and the guy i went with were the two that got selected Hmm. at that point i honestly didn't think i was gonna get anywhere near uh passing I just, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I looked at myself at that quality. 
Sure. You know, because when you look at a recon marine, especially a force recon marine, they're just like, they they look like gods among men, in right. my opinion. I just they were just older. They were just they were peak physical condition. I'm I'm still like the scrawny, twenty one year old. You know, at this point. Yeah. I'm like you know I just didn't see myself as that caliber, but I did. Apparently, I did pretty well in, on the selection, and and I was chosen to go into training, mm-hmm. and that was basically. You know, the rest is history. Sure. Past training, go to your schools, jump dive, um, you know, any other seer, sniper, free fall, whatever they have lined up for you. And then right. you get into a platoon, do a workup, do all the training, all the cool badass like shooting and explosives and jumping on airplanes with your with your team, diving into missions, doing go plats, gas and oil platforms, mm-hmm. uh, VBSS vessel ports, search and seizure. You're just doing all this different things, being fully capable. So the, the military can utilize you any way they deem necessary. So did all that and then went off to my third deployment with sure. So stepping back to your second deployment, what was, uh, what were, what was it like as far as like, um, dropping back into, into Iraq after you had left there the first time, how things had changed and what that felt like and what it looked like. Yeah. I, again, this is uh it's funny thinking about it cause I haven't thought about it in, mm-hmm. in a very long time. So at this point I'm, I, I, I think I'm a Lance corporal corporal E3 E4. And I have now have a, a, a squad of guys that are under me and, so I have a little bit more responsibility, but at the same time, all these guys are the same age. Some are more mature than I am. I'm, I'm super immature. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 20 years old. Um, and I'm in charge of my the guys that I just went to combat with, which is kind of weird because yeah. we're all we're all kind of the same rank and the same um, right. experience level. I don't know any more than than they do, you know. Did they just come up to you and just say you're, not, you're the leader now? They was, just select you. It was a there was there was a few things that happened. So we had some peop, some Marines come from security forces and from Eighth and I, which is the Washington D.C. unit. Mm-hmm. They do like the drill and the uh, they'll do like ceremonies in D.C. They'll be in the White House. So that's like Eighth and I, and the security forces is like. They call them fast company, but they're doing like embassy security. They, they do a lot of, uh, they'll do like, uh, a lot of CQB because they're inside, um, uh, embassy. So they have to be able to like, uh, secure an embassy, defend an embassy. Um, so they'll come over as like corporals and sergeants to our unit and they'll fill certain spots like squad leaders and platoon sergeants, but some of them have zero combat experience. Right. So we had, we had a few of those come over and one, the guy that was in my, that was in charge of my squad in charge of me, he got sick, had a surgery, had to step away and I was next in line. Hmm. So it was a sequence of events. I wasn't the first choice, but I was the second choice. He got injured. I stepped up and now I'm in charge of these guys. Yeah. Sure. So now you're heading into back into Iraq mm-hmm. and now you've, you're in charge of them. Yeah. And this time we went to Okinawa for a few months to do some training. Uh, it mm-hmm. was December, 2003. 
Um, so it was a quick turnaround. We got back in May of 2003 in our first deployment. Now we're back in we're Okinawa, December, uh, January, and we were back in Iraq, February. Mm-hmm. I hope I have my dates right. And that was another, that was a six-month deployment in Iraq. And this time we just flew directly into Kuwait. We took vehicles, seven tons, big troop carriers to um, a base right outside of Fallujah uh, called Camp Fallujah, mm-hmm. actually. And we stayed there and did various presence patrols, recon patrols, night patrols until Fallujah kicked off, which was um, March, April. Mm-hmm. Very, it was within that time frame very quickly. Um, I don't know if you remember the Blackwater guys that were killed in Fallujah and yep. strung up on the bridge. Yep. That's kind of what, that was a big key component that kicked off that battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, that was basically, hey, we're going to surround this this town because it was harboring tons of fighters. Mm-hmm. We're going to surround it with tanks and tracks and won't let anybody in and out. And what we'll do is we'll give them a week or two weeks. And I forgot what, how many days they gave them, but anybody that was innocent, we drop leaflets, we megaphones. If you don't want to fight, get in your car or walk out of the city and we'll give you some time. And right. we searched all the vehicles and everybody coming out. We had a whole thing on lockdown. And at that time, when time was up, then we moved in mm-hmm. slowly, just basically converged around the city. Um, my company, my platoon, we basically just took the lower east side of the city. If you look at it on a map, there's a place called Queens, which is the southern part of the of the city, and it's like very industrial. Mm-hmm. And um, it about a quarter way in, maybe almost halfway into the city, it goes from industrial factories, warehouses into actually residential. Mm. So when we actually got the green light to push in, we're on foot mostly, walking, searching, building the building, kicking in doors, um, getting pop shots from people. It was very quiet. It Mm. wasn't a lot. I might say, you know, I might add on that. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of resistance. It was very like kind of creepy and eerie and just like, right. Like kind of like the day one, like waiting for it to just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then again, they don't have night vision. They don't have the technology we have. So they need the sun to come up for them to actually have some sort of accuracy, you know, to be fair. Um, so the sun came up, we're, we're doing a tactical pause. We're hold. We're held up on this one, uh, probably two blocks back from the lo- the road where basically separated industrial buildings into residential. We held on this road, and from there we got orders to basically do recon patrols, and in, in in a square pattern. So go up a few blocks, come over a few blocks, go back, and then come back to where you started. Come back with all the intel you have, anything you see, anything out of the ordinary. If you see any barricades, any any personnel held up, anything out of the ordinary, that was basically our mission. My squad was the first one to go out in our little area and 
we suited up, got all our stuff ready, got a comm check. Comms are good. We go up a few blocks. As soon as we take that first right, and now to just give you some situational awareness, we are now on the corner where to behind us is all industrial and in front of us is all residential. Mm-hmm. It's like concrete. It looks like, it kind of looks like uh, townhomes, mm. just concrete, all, all uh, like a tan color surrounded and also just um, mixed with palm trees and different uh, foliage. Um, as soon as we take that right, my comms guy, he just weighs me down. He said, hey, we lost comms. I can't get anybody. I can't get a radio check or anything. He was doing radio checks probably every minute or two. Just tell them update just because we didn't want to go too long without you know, right. them hearing from us. He tells me we lost comms. I'm like, okay, is it something you can fix right now? He's like, no, I need, a, I need to work on it. So I was like, all right, everybody, let's fall back, go back to where we came from. It was down this Basically, the road we came from was like an alley, like industrial alley. And I, as I was telling people to come back. You're all just walking, no vehicle? Yeah, we're just on foot. Yeah. Just 10 of us. And as soon as we start falling back, one of my saw gunners uh, yells to me. He's like, hey, I just saw a guy run across the street with an RPG. I'm like, okay, Roger that. Everybody, let's go. And as soon as we started falling back, it was on. Rockets, mm. machine guns. 30-some guys, it seemed like they just opened up on us. Wow. From across the road. From so the thank resident. God you had, had you not fallen back, you'd have been right. I so, mean, yeah. Just if further, we, if we walked up any further, we would have been out in the open. just. Yep. And that's yeah. what they wanted, I yeah. think. They were waiting for us to completely go um, around that corner and my full squad to basically be flanked. Because the only thing that was on our right side was, was a wall, was just like, uh, uh, you know, uh, garage got nowhere to go, nowhere to go. Thank God we lost comms. I don't know if it was just, uh, an act of whoever or what it was just perfect timing because as soon as we lost comms, I pulled them back. That's when they reacted. They're like, we should get these guys now before they completely fall back. And it was on, uh, 30 guys opened up on us with various weapons and we returning fire. Thank God I got all my guys back behind doorways and behind concrete pillars and cars or whatever they can get behind. And we were just, you know, we didn't, at that point, we didn't need comms because a couple blocks back, we had the rest of the, uh, the unit hearing what was happening. So they were just on their way up. Yeah. We're returning fire. Uh, I mean, RPGs are skipping and blowing up around us. There's ricochets going, cracking all over. Um, it was probably the closest bullet that I've ever had zip by me. It was, I popped my head out to see what was going on. And when I did that, I felt this crack, this, you know, this, this air movement by my face. And it was a bullet that basically, you know, inches from my face hit the wall to my, just right, right behind me. And I was, and that was like, I remember at that moment I was like, Okay make sure your movements are calculated every one of them yeah yes because obviously if you you know 2 inches you would have been dead yeah so now you need to really cuz at this point i'm just kind of flowing i'm right. I'm, I'm shooting at movement i'm 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 in i'm, I'm just doing what i got to do but now it was like a it was like a wake up call it was like that round zipped by my face exploded behind you know inches behind me 
I felt all the concrete and, and debris, you know, pepper in my back of my neck and in my face. So now I'm just like, okay, I'm awake. I'm alert. Yeah. Oh shit. And you know, I have all my rest of my squad, just machine guns and shooting two Oh three grenades. And we're just like, how loud is it? I mean, I, I, do you ever, do you ever even notice the noise? Is it so, are you so focused that you don't, you tune out the, yeah, that's a good question because I, I mean, go mo- shoot your nine millimeter out in your yard yeah, and, you, and you're going to be like, ouch, two or three shots. You're like, shit, I got to find some, you know, that's, that's a, that's an amazing, I think about that a lot because I'll go out and outside and I'll shoot. If it's not a suppressed 22, it hurts my ears. Yeah. But there was really never a time I wore earplugs in combat. Right. And I am definitely am reaping the benefits of it now. Yeah. But there were, it, for some reason, I think your body just kind of, kind of just shuts off. Yeah. And protects certain things when that's happening because I don't remember that, that ringing. There was one time I do remember it when a, a rocket um, went off over. I was like laying down and this, our small gunners came up with a rocket and they shot over me, but the small gunner, the small gun, the small round is actually the, the loudest munition in our arsenal. So he basically just muzzle blasted you. Yeah, he was over. I, I was taking cover from a sniper. This is another incident. This is like a side story, but. Basically, we were getting a sniper shooting at us from this little, like, pillbox on top of this house. And I needed it taken out, so I called small gunners up, and they ran up, and they basically shot this thing, and it, and it blew it to, to high heaven. But um, they were right over me when they did it. I didn't think anything of it, but I'm just basically pushing my face into the concrete, try to get low, because the sniper is just cracking rounds at us. Yeah. And when it went off, I remember my, my, like the overpressure, like my head just felt swollen. My brain felt God. large and I just felt, heard the ringing for, you know, days. Yeah. That was a good one. But like you like the, all the other stuff, the ambushes, like shooting machine guns, like I don't remember anything like that ringing my bell. Yeah. Which is really weird. It is. The body definitely does do something there. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously your hearing at that point is your very least of your worries, but like, you don't care if you're going to be deaf someday. You're just trying to be alive, but yeah, we didn't have any high speed like Peltors or noise cancellation. We had, you know, some guys were putting cigarette butts in their ears. Yeah. You know, we, we had these really like these rubbery, they look like rubber darts that you'd like jam in your ear. And we had those and, uh, but not a lot of people had time. But I got to imagine too, like just as a total layman here, I'm thinking to myself, like I would tell you, no, I don't want earplugs in because I need, I want to be able to also hear my right. buddy. Even if it's just barely can hear him, I need to hear somebody right. say something to me. Like, yeah, you're taking one of your senses out of the game. Yeah. And you need everything you got right. there. Yeah, exactly. So if anything, some guys would t- put one earplug in on their right side, you know, the side they're like shooting from, or you know, one maybe the side their their radio is not on, mm-hmm. you know, so they would protect. That must one. mean their wife lays on the left side <laughs> yeah, of the bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like when I get home, yeah, the ag- left side can be dead. I don't <laughs> care. For some reason, <laughs> I, I ignore you when I'm facing this way always. Yeah. Um, but yeah. no, you guys. I mean, so obviously, you guys. I mean, once you got some help, you were able to take care of that ambush. And then, I mean, 
Yeah, Fallujah, I mean, Fallujah was just basically every day after that ambush. So my my squad was the one that kicked off Fallujah, I guess. Wow. We, we, we poked the hornet's nest because before that, there was really, like I said, nothing. It was very quiet. Pop shots here and there, a couple of firefights here and there. But that, you know, that amount of uh, firepower and... Yeah, you could have kicked that off in a way worse situation. I mean, way way worse outcome, obviously. With yeah, big time. We could I could have had got bodies all over the ground and yeah. myself too. So it was nobody. We had from another squad a guy get. He was in the prone shooting his his machine, you know, his his assault, and then he got a ricochet in the shoulder, and he also got shot in the head. But it hit his it hit his helmet, and it basically did a. It did a, it just did a full 360 inside toilet of his bolt. Yeah, toilet bolt inside of his helmet. Holy shit. Yeah. So he was the only one in. And he lived? Yeah. It didn't, it did not go into his skull. It went into his helmet and buzzed around his helmet. Man. But it did, he did take some, uh, like fragments from a, from a few rounds into his shoulder because they hit the ground first. That's just when it's not your time. Like that's insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. I mean, I can go and just tell you these small, short stories of things like that. Right. Where, like, an RPG. I was, I was standing. The only thing between me and this guy shooting an RPG at me was this small, maybe a ten-inch ten diameter phone pole, metal phone pole, mm-hmm. and, and that's the one thing that the rocket hit. It was coming right at me. And RPGs, they're super quick. You can't jump out of the way in, like, the movies. Right. He shoots it. It bounces off this phone pole right in front of me. It ricochets, goes out to the, you know, Netherlands. But this, it's what's in front now is this phone pole is, like, it's banging wobbling. and wobbling right in front of me. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just one of, I mean, I stepped on IEDs that didn't go off. I've had um, mortar rounds land in front of me that didn't go off. Right. Yeah. I mean, but I'm, but that that happened all the time. It was just like, right, crazy close. You calls. hear that stuff though, like listening to Jocko's podcast. I don't know if you listen to those, but when he's had like Dick Thompson on and some of those old SOG guys, and he's talked to John Stryker Meyer and like all those guys that survived that, which so much of that sounds like what you were doing was like all the time. Just it's just insanity, and they all have those stories of like they clearly just were like supposed to live somehow because then they had the guy that was just completely unlucky, you know. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't. I think what it is is just there's so much chaos happening. Obviously, you're gonna have those those weird circumstances. Yeah, you know, there's just so much going on. Obviously, there's gonna be guys that like my lieutenant in the in three hours he just he was in the wrong place at the wrong time right you know and he got around in him and that's just i think that's just the nature of the beast but yeah i mean it could be that there's a plan or there's uh there's somebody looking out for somebody or or it can just be right. chaos and, right. and within chaos you have weird crazy situations yeah exactly and then yeah. you have someone like me that sounds like I'm lying through my teeth talking about because it, it sounds so no, it not sounds at all. so random. No, not at all. And and that's the thing about like listening to those guys on that podcast and a lot of what they talk about 
sounds like stuff that like if I was watching this in a movie, I'd just get up and be like, This is ridiculous. Right. That's not like if I was gonna put that scene or Right. Yeah. Some, if the yeah. bullet goes around his helmet now, right. you'd be like, Okay, this is ridiculous. Right. Right. But that shit happens. Like yeah. he even has the helmet in his house. I mean he's oh, got yeah. he's got I think three kids, three or four kids. He has the flak that got shot up because he got shot in the shoulder. The flak has rounds in it. He's got the helmet that has a hole in the front, and you can see the ring that it left on the inside of the of the helmet. Yeah. So I mean, this stuff is this is legit stuff that that happened, and we were, you know, I had I I think I remember taking a moment pause and to grab him on the shoulder. I'm like, you good? He's like, yeah, like wide eyed. I'm like, I'm glad you're here because yeah, I just saw you take three rounds into your into your your body, your gear, your body, your gear, and, yeah. and now you're still talking to me. It was just you know, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine at times like that, everything pauses, everything just, there's gotta be times where like everything slows down and pauses. And it's, it's interesting too. It seems like what a lot of you guys do remember. Sometimes it is like, you might not be able to remember some details of a big battle, but then like there's little stupid little things that sometimes just are weird that like a guy, a guy thinks of a funny little thing that happened or. Yeah. I mean, what the mind notices in total chaos that you would think like that would not be ever something that you would notice. And, um, yeah. And you share a moment or you, you you like have this, this, yeah. And there's a, there's this one guy, Josh Ellis, and he's actually coming to a, uh, a, a veterans retreat here in a few weeks with me in Colorado. He was up on a gun. I think it was a 240 shooting, RPG hits the gun, hits his arm, his forearm, mm-hmm. breaks his arm, and the wings on the RPG grab his shoulder, rip it, fillet his shoulder back. And so he's got this broken, exposed, um, just destroyed forearm, and now his shoulder completely filleted back, ripped open. Um, you know, and, and we, he's, he's, he's not, he's not, happy he's kind of he's moaning screaming you know holding his arm uh docs run up you know get get him taken care of shoot some morphine in him and now he's like playing with the flap and laughing <laughs> yeah you know and he and i'm sure he remembers obviously a lot of that but there is those are the stories and those are like the funny little and weird chaotic scary right. moments mixed with humor and like i'll never forget that right so right. yeah yeah <laughs> No, it's crazy. Well, I mean, I could ask you about all this stuff for hours. I won't do that. But, I mean, you've already shared a ton. But, like, with that second deployment, um, uh, you know, and how how many months was that second deployment? Close to six. Six months. Just shy of six, yeah. Then you head back, and then you end up doing the recon training. Yep. And and that was a couple years. A couple years. Um, and of going through the training, going through my schooling and the workup. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a good amount of time. And so when you went back the third time, was it into Afghanistan this time? No, it's was also it? Iraq. It was. Yeah. Yeah. I got lucky again. Um, yeah, we went into, uh, Baghdad originally and we, um, we, we were, we were stationed in a few different bases, but we ended up in a base called Korean village KV and it was near the Syrian border. So we were just we were just kind of doing little missions outside close to the border intercept intercepting missions on vehicles. So are you is it more 
the the recon versus the infantry. I mean, infantry, you know, clearly you gave us a picture of what you guys were doing. Is the the recon more of smaller team, like going for a specific person target? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of us think of like a Navy SEAL type team where they're going in for a specific target yeah. or a objective. Is that what you guys are exactly. doing? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I don't think the missions really were different between SEALs, Rangers, Delta, Recon, yeah. whatever. I mean, you get, you have a target. If it's a bomb maker, if it's a this or if it's a that, a suspected house that is doing whatever you get, you get a, you get a hit site, you go and do a hit on it, you mm-hmm. blow the doors off. You, could be a soft approach where you sneak up on the you try to you test the locks or it could be a hard hit where you just roll up in humvees put a charge on the door blow the doors off go into the house see what's going on in the house so forgive me for probably a dumb question but did you it would be hard to imagine that the first couple deployments you told me about were enjoyable or fun but did you enjoy the the recon marine stuff quite a bit more than the infantry. I mean, it seems like the infantry part, you're just constantly just chaos and getting yeah. shot at and like no control, uh, not no control, but yeah, no, like, I know what you mean. Yeah. So I, what I liked about the recon side is that it was, it was very more surgical, more calculated. You were in complete control. Generally. It seemed that way. Yeah. We get a mission. We put together the, our, our basically how we're going to complete the mission, um, execute it, um, it was very, like you said, small numbers. We'd go in with just our platoon. Uh, sometimes we'd have support on the outskirts or standing by. Yeah. We'd go in, we would hit a house, hit a few houses and get out. Yeah. Whereas infantry, you're, you, you can't hide. It's right. You're, you're, you know, a couple hundred guys with vehicles and tanks and right. So I did, lo- I did like, enjoy that part about the, the recon side, but but I saw more action being a grunt. Mm-hmm. I got into more gunfights. I had more engagements, killed more people in the infantry than I did with the recon side. Right. And that makes more sense because when you're going in hitting a house, it could be one or two guys in there, or you get pop shots across the street from a guy, or it just is smaller because you're, again, you're rolling around with, you know, 20 guys, six guys. Well, and I have to imagine you guys are also doing a fair amount of, kind of recon work before you're even going there. So, you know, there's not potentially a hundred, hundred guys there sitting there waiting for you. Like, you know, right. your, your targets may be fairly. Yeah. We're not, hittable. We're, we're not going in there very, you know, just blindly and just right. like, we're in the infantry deal. You walk around the corner and yeah, little, you know, you got a hundred guys all laying a trap for you. Yeah. And then, and with infantry, it's more like you're clearing out an area and then you're basically learning about it as you're clearing it, you know, instead of now we're getting overhead imagery, we're getting, we have a ISR in the sky that's kind of giving us updated, you know, if the car is coming down the road, we know that we can be some human intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can see, you know, infrared, we can see how many people are in the courtyard before we get there, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas that, that, that kind of stuff in, in, in infantry is we're, I mean, it does happen. We get that intel, but it's like we're what I was doing in the infantry. We were just taking over cities. <laughs> yeah. We were clearing out cities. So it's like, hey, uh, watch your six. Oh, Every, shit. Everybody's gonna probably try to kill you. Yeah. Whereas you know, the recon side, we we get a house, we get a few houses, or we get it like maybe he's in this or that house. We got to hit both of them. Yeah. We'll 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 do a uh, dual hit, 
uh, simultaneous hit, uh, see if we can get whoever we need to get, which it was like a 50, 50 thing at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of dry holes. Um, sometimes the guy wasn't there. His car is there. He's not there. So stuff like that. But I enjoyed both. Mm-hmm. I, I just enjoyed the progress or the, it's just the, uh, you know, going from the grunts because I loved, I love that side, learning the basics, learning, um, that type of warfare mm-hmm. and then going over and, uh, progressing into, a, I guess a more calculated way of fighting. Mm-hmm. Sure. So how, how long was that deployment then? That was nine months. Nine months. Yeah. So we, we actually started off on a boat, uh, went to Hawaii, believe we went to India or Singapore, India, and then we went to Iraq for five and a half months. Oh, wow. And then we went back on the Why boat. did they send you around like that? I mean, what's the, we just different on, trainings? Yeah, or? we were on a uh, Marine Expeditionary, uh, just, um, it's called a MEW, so um, Marine Expedition Unit, and basically we're, you're on a boat with a, a fleet of uh, other boats, and uh, we were on a, uh, um, just a troop carrier, uh, had Harriers on it, and we all, we kind of knew we were going to eventually, you know, this this Mew was going to go to Iraq. Um, so it was just a that was just our transport to get there. Jeez, what's it like? I mean, living on the boat was floating around. Was, on boat. I would rather go to Iraq and just live in Iraq or just go on deployment than be on a boat. Sleep in a dirt hole. Yeah, I'd rather do that than be on a boat. Yeah, be on a boat is there's not much going on. You you don't have a lot to do except work out, eat. You're sleeping in these little coffin racks. It's uncomfortable. You're the boat swaying back and forth. You have the, the, the sounds of the boat. You have the, you know, the anchor. I'd be so sick. Yeah. It, it's just not, it wasn't my style. Uh, it was cool to experience, get that check in the box. But, um, I was like, Hey, just fly me to Iraq. I'd rather just go, yeah. to, go and do some work there. So, um, when you were doing, you know, these missions and stuff, did you have dogs with you as well? Did you guys have a dog and a dog handler? There was definitely dog handlers that were attached to the unit, but um, my last deployment we had one dog handler. Um, but, yeah, we didn't have a lot of, like, uh, we didn't have a lot of use for them that, at the time. They were doing a lot of, like, bomb sniffing. Mm-hmm. We did not have any where we needed to, like, catch any squirters. We didn't use them for that. It was mostly, like, sniffing out bombs, uh, IEDs. Um, Yeah. Seems like with the IED issue especially, it seems like they just ramped that up more and more over the years that, like... They got really sophisticated with them. Yeah, it seems like, man, you'd want to have a dog with everybody, but... Yeah, or a metal detector. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, they were getting really good with, like... Pressure plates. I mean, at first it was, it was like um, control, control debt where it was like a radio mm-hmm. on scanner, and they would hit the other radio and press, you know, push to talk, and it would scan through the channels, and then it blow up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, you know, ones where they would probably have like a a direct charge where the, they're connected to it, and they'd hit a a detonator, and it'd blow up immediately. And then they got where they can just bury them, put a a pressure plate where they can just leave it and they know that eventually it's going to go off. Someone's going to step on it or a mm-hmm. truck's going to roll over it. And that, that became the majority of them from like 2005, six and on mm-hmm. was 
most of them were just pressure plates and and or like garage door openers where they had like the it amazes me how they navigated their own damn country you know like they're setting all that stuff out for you guys and it amazes me how they you know if they're setting that stuff how the rest of the guys know that you know taliban or whatever that that are how in the hell they're driving around right you know? and not not setting them off setting them off yeah yeah i guess like if you like here in town if uh everybody's kind of in the know of where they're gonna probably well that's what i was saying they must had a, they must have had a really good you know underground communication system yeah for like, sure hey there's one out behind the old dump out there don't right. go over there yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that's exactly what they did it's like hey the word got around pretty quick and they yeah. weren't gonna tell us like, "Hey, American, watch out for right. this road." You know, they're right. probably don't want us there. Right. You know? um, so yeah, and if they get caught telling, yeah, oh yeah, then that's, that's not good for, for their families. So. Right. So, how many deployments did you end up doing then? Three in the Marine Corps. Three in the Marine yep. Corps, and uh, what what made you decide to to get out? Uh, I, I think it was just got to the point. I was eight years. I did my second enlistment. Um, you know, I was, if I did 12 in my, in my mind, I was like, if I enlisted for another four that brought me to 12, I might as well just do 20, mm-hmm. you know? And that's just how I, I thought about it. But really, I just, I kind of felt like I, I, I was, I did it. You know, I, I did the yeah. recon deal. I, I was an instructor. I taught other recon Marines. I, had a lot of combat experience a lot of close calls i just like maybe i should just go off into the real world and experience something different you know i i got it really hot and heavy really fast yeah young marine i got a lot of a lot of uh a lot of combat in i got i i I completed one of a a goal that i wanted to complete since i was a in high school is be a recon marine i never thought i was going to be able to do that um was jumping out of airplanes. I was diving. I was doing cool stuff. I was, you know, learning the sniper missions. And so I, I just got to the point where I was like, Hey, uh, shit or get off the pot. You know, you're, you're, yep. you have to reenlist or you need to leave. So I was in my mind, I was like, well, I'll get out and I'll try my hand out in the real world and civilian life. And if I don't like it, I'll just reenlist, come back in at right. that, at that time. A lot of guys were doing that. Really? Yeah, they'd get out and do a year, and they'd be like, "Ah, it's not for me," and they'd come back in. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was like, well, "This is a perfect o- opportunity for me to do the same thing." Sure. So I, I had no animosity, no like resentment. I was just kind of got to the point where I was a little burnt out. Honestly, yeah. I just wanted to do something different, and change it up. Sure. So what'd you do when you got out? The day that I received my DD two fourteen, um, I sent my paperwork over to a buddy that was working on a contract with the CIA and he basically took my papers, everything, the SF 86 form, which is like your background check and then handed it over to his people. And basically I just kind of, I did a, I did a couple contracting gigs for a few months. I went to Costa Rica and like four months after I, maybe three and a half months after I submitted my papers, they called me up and asked me if I want to come into training. Mm-hmm. and on the east coast so what was your thought at that point like what did you want to do the C- with the cia or what what did you think they did yeah like, my, and i would imagine you'd work closely with them 
while you were deployed? A little maybe bit, not too much. Not, I mean, we had we had intel people overseas, but I didn't really get this to work on that other side of the curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I the way my buddy described it is like this is a pretty cool job. We're still doing cool missions. We're getting paid eight hundred dollars a day. Um, yeah, you know, I think you'll like it. And being twenty six years old, and I'm coming out of the Marine Corps getting paid that much money, getting to do cool stuff, yeah, still, still still run around with a gun in my hand. It was, it was appealing. Right. So I was like, yeah, let's try it out. And right. it's not like they can, they make me, you know, if I didn't like it, I'll just stop. You know, right. I had that option for the first time in my life after eight years of being in the Marine Corps, you can't just stop the Marine Corps. Right. So I was like, well, if I don't like this contracting stuff, I'll just go and find something else. So mm-hmm. I felt pretty confident that I tried out. I like it. I like it. I'll stay. Right. I did that for close to four years. Mm-hmm. And they were deploying you to back to the Middle East or to other countries? Yeah, or? all Afghanistan. Oh, really? All yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. So usually when you're on this contract, I was a GRS agent, a global response staff. And basically you are a bodyguard for the CIA and you went and these GRS agents are in all the hot zones. So like Libya, Benghazi was GRS, mm-hmm. Iran, Iraq, Yemen, all over the, all the bad. So you're a bodyguard for the guys that are trying to get the Intel or do right. whatever. All they, the case officers and yeah, anybody that needs to do a movement. I mean, we had various people doing work in those countries and if they needed to, go from base to somewhere outside the wire. We needed to facilitate the movement. We need to make sure they're getting from point A to point B safely. Mm-hmm. Also um, make sure everybody on base was safe. I mean, our, our objective and our, our mission statement was just to make sure everybody was safe. You know, nobody was doing anything stupid and we basically controlled um, the security element of the missions. When you were doing that particular work, did you have much actual action and, you know, contact type stuff that you were engaged in or was it, was it pretty quiet? I would say overall, because, you know, at four years and coming from what I just came from, it was super quiet. Well, yeah, you came straight out of yeah. hell. It's, yeah. It's yeah. hard to compare the two, but yeah, we, we, I did get into a couple ticks, a couple engagements. We had some active shooters on base. Um, We've I've had we had multiple guns drawn on us from like you know their army in Afghanistan their police you know some some hair raising moments but are you plain clothes during all that are you trying to blend most of the time we were plain clothes we never rolled we rarely I should say rolled around in in a military style vehicles mm-hmm. we were in um, level seven armor real thick armor vehicles but it was mostly like Land Cruisers Toyotas. Um, Hilux, mm-hmm. Corollas, Mercedes. Um, Did you enjoy that part of just trying to blend and just? Yeah, it was cool. Like, like it, you're like that super agent guy. Yeah, exactly. We're dressed up. We're you know wearing a Afghani pakul hat. Right. We're, we have beards. We have, you know, you're you're wearing a a man dress. You know, and, and yeah. from the chest up, you look legit. You're driving around, and from the chest down, you have a shooting rig on. And your gun is next to your leg and you're at any moment you can get ambushed and mm-hmm. you, you have to like get out of the car with the man dress on and 
get go to work. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it was it was yeah. it was cool because we we actually did play that. You know, it's a very you're not on the offensive anymore. If you get right. shot at, you try to get off the X. You try to get out of that situation as fast as possible. It's just you, one other guy with a gun, and then you have your asset yeah, you're and to be your invisible. case officer in the back seat. So you are not manned up and you are not equipped to fight. Mm-hmm. You know, you're there to do what you can as best as you can and, and get away. Right. Yeah. Gosh, incredible. It's a completely, it was different because, you know, I come from the Marine Corps. We're just like going after people, just trying to, like, it was just like, you know, seek and destroy to, yeah. hey, keep your nose clean, um, get in and get out. Don't, don't, don't be noticed. Right. So, um, and how long did you do the CIA gig for? Close to four years. Four years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, what, what made you, did you just kind of get tired of, in deploy and just want a different phase in life or what made you get out this uh i would would, i'll say anybody that worked for for this particular contract the grs contract you're probably going to get a a similar opinion across the board it's it was very political it Mm -hmm. was very um you, you you had to watch what you said around those people, mm-hmm. uh, agency people, you, there was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of backstabbing. There was a lot of stuff I never experienced being in the Marine Corps. Right. The Marine Corps, you can sit, you can call people, whatever you can, you can joke around. You could be yourself if you, you know, or not yourself, whatever, but you're not going to get in trouble for calling somebody a name right, or a, a funny nickname. Or telling right. a, a story that you and your buddies did on a on a Saturday night in town with a couple ladies, like right. you now you have to watch what you say. You got to watch who you eat lunch with. You have to keep you know keep your head down, go to work, and and sometimes you, if even if you did that, you still. So you're like you're you're all of a sudden kind of in that like you're playing politics and also like in that corporate setting, like corporate world. Like, yeah, let me paint a picture. Okay, so like you have these GRS agents that are inside these CIA uh, bases, and so you have these knuckle draggers, these big like, you know, they're they're muscular, they have beards, they look like shooters. You know, they're 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 Navy SEALs, they're recon Marines, they're Delta guys, they're Rangers. They have muscles, they have tattoos, they have guns. And then you have all these nerds. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And then you have, and we're now mixed with women and all, you know what I mean? Right. Some good looking, some whatever. And now you, you mix these knuckle draggers that are, that oh, are yeah. reeking of testosterone with these women here. And then you're going to have some, you're going to have some stuff going on. You're going to have some jealousy from people that are not that. Yeah. So you see where I'm going. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it, it plays a funny dynamic within this. You're not on, you sometimes are on a military base, but the GRS and the CIA had their own, always had their own little entity within any, anywhere they were in the country. Mm. So you're, you're, you're now working with all walks of life from the agency. It's interesting. Like, it's just weird that, I mean, you're still deployed. You're still overseas. You're still really in the same battle. I mean, in a, in a way, like it's right. You're all there trying to achieve, and the same objective, but it's like you would think. You would think, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, some of these people are 
were hardcore Democrats and they were, you know, they, they're, they're, they thought they were going to win the war with their stroke of their pen. You know, they were going to be the one to find, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden and they were going to Well, and I would imagine there's also a lot more maybe of the, let's face it, they're probably all trying to really climb the ladder as fast Absolutely. as they can too. I mean, they're in for, probably a lot more men for themselves and how can they get out of that situation and back to the U.S. in a higher situation? If, yeah, and they, they knew if they found intel to to that led to a capture or kill of some a high individual a high value target then their right. their status goes up their work right. gets gets noticed so of course yeah it's it's a status thing and oh you're working on this this thing oh okay yeah so you're part of now this this uh package that's being developed and this hits that's being developed in this mission that's about to go down and now your name is stamped on it for sure yeah. Um, I mean, that's how people got killed over there was they pushed the limit of, of what was safe and what was not safe to get that information. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, a scene in well, it happened in coast in 2009, December where the, the chief of base female made us stand down and not search her asset. And her asset told her he has direct intel to uh, Osama bin Laden and the whereabouts and whatever. He had something real juicy for her. Yeah. So she invited him on base to get this intel, and we were going to have a big dinner and nice nice uh, layout for him and to have him come and eat dinner and give us information and blah, blah, blah. Well... She tells us to not search him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to be searched. That's his, uh, you know, that's what he uh, wanted out of the deal. He's like, I just want to come on base. I'll give you the information. We'll do the deal. Which should be a red flag. Yeah, big time. And she tells us to not search him. She's threatening the jobs of these men and, you know, telling them to, like, you know, I'm in charge and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, um, they unfortunately uh, allow this to happen he comes on base um he comes steps out of the vehicle guys are telling him to get his hands up he's acting funny and then he sets himself off he was wearing a, a suicide vest, vest. Yeah. he kills seven of them so it kills the main lady that told everybody to stand down her one of her case officers her like I forgot what her status was, but killed uh, four uh, security agents mm. and three uh, agency personnel. Yeah, I believe I have that correct. But it was seven altogether. And in at the base in coast Afghanistan, they have a, 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 a memorial there with the seven pairs of boots on a on this uh, you know uh, podium with the American flag in the middle um, as a reminder. Of you know, we always should maintain our security and, and maintain the rules and not right. and your standards. Yeah, exactly. Or, and that's a it's a it's a really stark reminder of like when you allow your ego and you allow you, you know your your desire it, for the yeah. outcome you're wanting or hoping for yeah, over the lives of the individuals. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So you got out some of that stuff happening and and. 
I mean, what now? What do you decide to do? After I get done with that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, there was a time where I was getting pretty frustrated with all the, the BS mm-hmm. involved in this, and I, I really enjoyed the money. Um, I was having issues with the relationship I was in. Um, it was just getting to the point where I was just kind of getting burnt out. I was yeah. doing two uh, 60 or 90 day rotations coming home for 30 months or excuse me, 30 days and then going back and doing another 60, 90. Mm-hmm. So I was just back and back and just trying to collect as much money as possible. Um, but I just got burnt out. I burnt myself out pretty quickly. Um, got done with that and immediately started, um, I went straight into uh, doing bodyguarding in LA. Yeah. Yeah. I had a buddy that had a business um, in LA and I kind of partnered up with him and we started doing protection for celebrities and people of interest and just rich individuals. Sure. Boring stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely boring compared to what you came from. Yeah. It was a lot of sitting at somebody's uh, in their garage, looking at monitors and driving them to and, from uh, places i can't imagine how boring that would yeah. be it sounds really cool when you're like i'm a bodyguard for so-and-so and it's like actually i just kind of sit on my ass all day you'd want to be the bodyguard for the guy that actually had people after him then it would actually be oh yeah when more you're fun. like you know playing karate with people like <laughs> yeah. ninjas are crawling over yeah. the wall or, how did yeah or somebody that's like traveling a lot and you're like going to like exotic places that'd be kind of cool so i mean how what Cause, how old were you when you got out then? Uh, about thirty. Thirty. So it's been about eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, did you uh, did you take some time to just kind of travel, decompress? I mean, how how did you? Obviously, today we hear. I mean, I had uh, Joe Maynard on here. He was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot, and he talked real openly about how he struggled. And I don't even think he said he, I don't think he thought he was going to struggle. And then he really ended up struggling and just trying to find his, where he fit, like in society and back in the family and like the whole nine yards, you know. And, um, you know, he told definitely powerful story about he actually attempted suicide and, you know, just the whole thing. And he ended up finding knife making and blade forging and really felt like that was something that saved his life. And now he's got a, trailer he's traveling the country and he's wanting to just kind of like take that art form out there and it's definitely given him purpose you know but how how did you do with kind of coming off of that and just adapting to society and I mean you you lived a pretty kinetic life for a while yeah I, I honestly I was going so fast that I didn't have time to think about it when I was doing all the deployments um it all caught up it was like a rush that caught up to me when I got out Mm-hmm. So when I was done with agency work, I was at home. I was doing this bodyguarding. I was traveling. Uh, I was surfing in Fiji. I went to Costa Rica. went to Nicaragua, Bali. Mm-hmm. I was going anywhere where there's waves, trying to enjoy myself. But I was definitely hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, de- uh, my relationship that I, I had while I was in the agency went away. Um, my mother passed away in 2014. Um, the, the business that I was doing, it was, I wasn't happy with it. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, bodyguarding celebrities. This wasn't fulfilling me. Uh, so it was like my career, my, you know, fam, my mom dying, my, uh, 
girlfriend that I thought I was going to marry no longer. Mm-hmm. So it was like all these big things in my life that kind of happened all at once. It just kind of just hit me within a few years. Mm-hmm. And I was in a real, real bad spot after 2014. I was, mm-hmm. I was hurt. All of 2015 was probably the dark time of my life where I was thinking about death a lot. I was kind of felt like I was coming to the end of my run. Mm-hmm. You know, I, all the cool stuff was behind me. Um, things were failing around me. It was just like, you just don't feel great. You know what I right. mean? I just was, I was in such a slump and it was what I remember talking to one of my best friends and he's asking me, you know, just, you can change your mindset. Cause I'm telling him how depressed and how like I'm, I'm going to sleep with tears in my eyes and waking up with tears in my eyes. Like I was just consumed by, by, uh, depression and just sadness all the time. Mm-hmm. And my mind was constantly thinking negative. Mm-hmm. I remember that. It was just always thinking about the negative about everything. Like I never was able to smile about anything and just be like, oh, let it roll off my back and, right. you know, keep going. So I actively, you know, I was like, I know I tried therapy. I tried SSRI drugs to get my brain right. I tried yoga and meditation and this and that. And I really, nothing worked nothing mm-hmm. really like stuck and it was like oh i c- i could feel this working none of it worked the drugs mm-hmm. didn't work they made it made it worse the therapy i hated talking to people about my issues because mm-hmm. i didn't get anything back you know i could talk to talk to my best friends about my issues and they they would give me more feedback than these therapists were right so i started doing some research into psychother- psycho psychedelic therapy and I met a, I met a woman that actually had access to circles in LA, like ayahuasca ceremonies and other, other plant medicine. Mm-hmm. And I told her a brief story of my history and how really nothing was working for me. And I, uh, I asked her, I was like, can I be a part of this? Can you bring me into the circle? And she was like, absolutely. So I think it was a few weeks after that, I went into ayahuasca ceremony in LA and had some really, really profound, deep personal experiences that I remember just coming out the next morning, just feeling so light and like, I just Mm. shed all this dead skin and all this armor fell off of me. I just, I I knew that there was something more to this. And it was the first time I was like laughing and being, uh, sincerely happy. Mm But I remember I just was happy again. I was like, wow. I was like, all this stuff I can look at, look at it as like, yeah, it was troubles troubling to me, but it wasn't anything that I wanted to kill myself over. Like I, I finally had that thought right? and I was like, this is amazing. Like, I, I don't know if it was a placebo or whatever it was. I liked it mm-hmm. and I felt great. I felt energetic. I was in this, I was in this like afterglow of just happiness. Right. Fast forward a couple more weeks, I run into this guy that asked me to do some bodyguard work for him, and I found out he's a he's a therapist, doctor that treats his patients um, with really bad substance abuse, and a lot of times he takes them down to Peru in the Amazon jungle and does ayahuasca with them at, at this retreat, and he's telling me about this before I even tell him anything about my story, and I was like, this is crazy that you're here saying this is two weeks ago. I had my own ceremony and he's like, wow, that's amazing. And we, you know, I tell him my story. He's like, well, in a, in a 
couple of weeks, I'll probably have a, an individual that needs to be escorted down to Peru. And if you want to do that for me, then we could set this up. Wow. So sure enough, this guy, he's like, this guy is ready to go. And, um, I, we t- I take him down to Peru and I was basically his escort down there, but I really didn't need to be. He was, he was willing and he was a nice guy and he, he needed to, he just probably just needed a buddy to go down there with. And I needed to go down there as well. Yeah. So it was a great, um, you know, exchange of my services for him to pay for my, my trip down there. Right. So he paid, he paid, basically paid me in this retreat. Yeah. Perfect. Right? Yeah. It was great. So go down to Peru, go down in Quito's on the Amazon jungle and, uh, excuse me, Amazon river. And, um, I, I did air, ayahuasca almost every night. For a month and a week and a half, so about forty now, some days. I've heard a little bit. You know, Rogan's talked about ayahuasca, and yeah. I know uh, a couple of the other guys. I don't want to name names just because I I'm not sure if I'll get them all exactly right. A couple of black rifle guys, and I've just heard of different guys doing it. But how is the ayahuasca administered um, exactly? What because there's ayahuasca and then there's there's a couple different parts to that whole treatment, right? Uh, yeah. So basically the main compound in, in ayahuasca is the DMT, that dimethyltryptamine. Mm-hmm. And that is in, there's two main ingredients in the ayahuasca. It's a, a tea, basically a drink that you drink. Um, and it's a leaf, a tracruna leaf, and that has the DMT. And then the ayahuasca vine, which is this brown vine that they break up and mash up into little pieces and, they boil it with the leaf, the tracruna leaf. So you get high levels of DMT when they boil it down. And what the vine does is, is it, it basically keeps, it's a MAO inhibitor. I don't know exactly the, how it works inside of you, but it basically keeps your body from breaking down the DMT. Because mm-hmm. there's DMT in like foods that we eat, like mm-hmm. lettuce and whatever, cucumbers. But the reason we're not tripping after eating lettuce and, and the salad is because our body just breaks down the DMT. So the the vine actually keeps your body from uh, metabolizing it. And so when you drink it, you drink like a shot glass of this stuff and you can trip up to six hours. Yeah. And it's not just what some people would are thinking with tripping. It's a very subconscious evaluation of yourself yeah i've heard him say like basically they drank it and then kind of fell back and like the one guy said it just felt like he continued to fall and then he said he he also was very conscious with the uh like it was he said it was weird because like he was able to like go to certain memories he wanted to explore and like was somewhat in control of it um yeah so there, there's, there are people that have smoked DMT mm-hmm. and like Joe Rogan um, and there's some other, so smoking DMT, smoking 5-MeO DMT and, and drinking ayahuasca are different in my opinion. Okay. They're the same compound, but I believe, this is just my opinion, um, that you it's a two different trips. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, uh, smoking DMT isn't is around eight minutes, 10 minutes. So that's what they've said is that, yeah, there's one that's much longer, like where you have to have. Yeah. That's, that's ayahuasca. That's drinking. Okay. That is, you know, and in his ceremonies, I've drink, I've drank three, four times in the night, keep the 
it going and lasting six, seven, eight hours. And smoking DMT, it for me lasted 10 minutes. Wow. And so it's a smoking it just like anything. If you smoke marijuana, it's immediate almost. If you eat marijuana, it takes 30 minutes to kick in because that's the way your body works. Well, smoking 5-MAO-DMT, you smoke and take hit large hits of this this compound, you get blasted off into a, another dimension. Okay. And you can do that with ayahuasca. That That's the same compound, but it's very rich. It's high density when you smoke it, and it's okay. immediate. Hmm. And your body also, it, it, it you produce DMT in your body naturally. So your body basically, you know, uh, metabolizes it very naturally. So you're not like hungover. It's nothing harsh on your body. It's, it's a natural substance that actually is in you. So were you able to go kind of in your mind all the way back through, even into your childhood and see memories yep. and kind of deal with like lots of that stuff and as in throughout the war as well? Yeah. So I, I've had trauma throughout my childhood. Like I didn't really get into my childhood childhood too much, but I witnessed a lot of really nasty things when I was a kid, like um, my dad overdosing in crack houses and heroin houses and me being a child and left in those houses. I watched my dad hang himself uh, unsuccessfully Hmm. when I was a kid and I cut him off the rope when I was was 12 years old. Um, I watched my parents fight and break their bones over each other. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched my dad get arrested multiple times. I've hugged him through jail cells. I've, um, you know, my mom did kill herself in 2014. So I had a lot of trauma that I had to like kind of deal with. Mm -hmm. And it was stuff that as, as a man, as a Marine, I just buried it. Right. I, it was my life. So I didn't have anything to compare it to other people's lives. And it was just like, that's how, what I, how I grew up, you know, I had, that's what I had to deal with. Right. I didn't really think it was that bad until, <laughs> until it was all coming up later in life. I was, I was super angry. I was knocking people out. I'd go to bars and I'd get into fights. I'd, I'd have these rage. I'd, I'd have these outbursts. I'd have these, uh, you know, uh, anxiety attacks. I'd have, I'd had, I had a, this slew of uh, PTSD sure. happening, but I didn't realize it. I just was like, this is just me. You know, I've, I've been through some shit, but yeah. it wasn't until ayahuasca that it would allow me and it, and, and you don't really have a choice sometimes with ayahuasca and DMT. It, really? It'll bring you to, you know, it, it, in my opinion, ayahuasca is a living thing and you're, you're allowing this living thing to enter your body and, and help you and, and heal you. Mm-hmm. So that's how I looked at it. And that's how, when I receive it, that's how I feel like it's going to work. It's going through my body. It's going through my mind and it's actually healing the things that it feels it needs to heal. Do you feel like it work? it would work better? You went there seeking it. Yes. Do you think if you got one of your buddies who was struggling from that you served with and uh, that, was still in that state of telling you like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. Like whatever. I don't need any help. I don't need, that's stupid. Do you think the mindset of going into it or do you think if you got a guy down there like that said, Hey, drink, drink this. Um, do you think it would be as effective or do you think you have to be prepared for it going into it? So I have brought my veteran buddies into ceremony. Mm-hmm. I brought, 
just recently, a few months ago, I went to Joshua Tree and, and I had nine veterans show up to ceremony. Mm-hmm. So I, I have facilitated that. I've, I've brought people into this community mm-hmm. uh, because it worked so well for me. And it was such an amazing relief in how quick it worked without having to take drugs and, and take like antidepressants. And, yes, or, exactly. Or, I didn't right. have to change my psyche. What I had to do, what I used was a natural medicine that comes from the earth. You actually had to deal with what was going on, right. not cover right. it up, bury it. Exactly. It, yeah. And that that's it. A, you do the work. It makes you do the work. And that's what I want. I think that's what I was searching for. That it was the therapy and the drugs and the yoga and the meditation wasn't tapping into the memories that were right. breaking up my, that were making me this person that, it, that I hated. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And, 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 and then the other, the other side of that question about bringing people in, um, I think also think they need to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Just like, uh, just like, uh, someone that is an addict, needs to do it for themselves it's not like you're going to grab them by their collar and bring them to rehab right they need to be ready to receive this medicine mm-hmm. so you need to have a willing participant someone that knows they need to work on some stuff and i don't know what they're going through i don't know if it's sure. the war if it's their childhood or if it's like their current state with their wife or their spouse whatever but they need to know that they want to do the work. Mm-hmm. And even if your life is great, this is just my opinion, but I, I think even if your life is great and you have everything going for you and everything's, I think ayahuasca still has a purpose for you. Mm-hmm. You can still find, you can, you can still learn about yourself. Mm-hmm. You can still become more of an open, more of expressive, more emotionally uh, intelligent, more loving. There's always room for that. In my opinion, mm-hmm. there's more there. You can always go deeper down those rabbit holes. Sure. Yeah. No, well, I don't know. It's super cool. And there's there's obviously been enough people talk about it and enough people that have gone and done it that have walked out entirely changed. I mean, it's you can't really argue it. It's pretty obvious that there's and I and I think it's cool that it's a like you say, it's a natural it's it's a natural benefit, it's naturally occurring. Um and that you're a, you're an active participant in helping yourself versus um, I, I think a lot of people like guys that have gone through what you've done and and been very capable people don't you don't want somebody else to fix your problem like right. you you want to fix your own problems you just don't have to know how the hell to yeah. do it um, yeah you feel ashamed if uh, someone else is or especially someone you know right is trying to get you to come on let's go let's go get some help let's do this and you're like just leave me alone. Right. You know, I don't want you to know what I'm going through. I don't want you to see my progress. You know, I, I, yeah, it's, especially being, you know, it's probably the ego side of being a man or being closed off. It could be anybody. It doesn't have to be just a man, but you're just, you want to definitely, it's better to want to do that for yourself. And I think it's a little bit more uh, rewarding when you take that leap of faith and then you come out better on the other side. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's definitely, I think that's what's definitely different about today than, um, say, the Vietnam era, where, let's face it, I mean, 90, 90% of those guys are more, did bury it forever, still yeah. today. I mean, I was just talking about my kids, or with my kids uh, last night. Um, 
you know, my ex-wife's dad was in Vietnam and I would love nothing more than to be able to get him to sit here and basically talk like you just did about his experience, even though he's really talked to nobody. Like mm-hmm. he's told very little, small, pretty insignificant things to, yeah. you know, his, even his own son, who's 50 years old. Um, and I told my kids, I'm like, it's not to get him on the podcast to try to make a great podcast to get ratings or to get like, it's not about trying to be like an entertainment thing. I would do it and not even post it if that's what yeah. he wanted. If, if it meant, cause he's, you know, he's getting older, right? They all are. If it meant, uh, 30 years from now, my kids, his kids could sit and listen to their grandpa talk about, cause once he passes away that, right. There's no chance of ever knowing sure. what he did. Yeah. There's no chance the of ever knowing what he went through. Yeah, and and um, I think he's still of that era of like, one, I don't think, he, I think a lot of what he did, he wasn't allowed to talk about for a long time, like the SOG guys. I mm. mean, like, they didn't even exist, right? That, as far as the U.S. government was concerned for years, it was classified. And I, I think he had alluded to the fact that what he was involved in, according to the government, wasn't, he wasn't even there, you know? There's that part of it, but that's obviously been a lot of that's been declassified. He could talk about it, but then there's the other part of just the pain, and then um, bringing up those memories, bringing up those memories, and not wanting to be emotional and just yeah. like the whole nine yards. But to me, Some guys took years and years to bury those properly to the point where they could just function, right? Society, and you know, we don't, I don't, I can't even though I was in combat, I was not there with them. You know what I mean? Like it's a completely different, right. Uh, war, different style, different era, different Jungle equipment. Versus desert. Yeah. Right. And so I, I can't not, I can't say that I would do this or that, but I know those guys did not have the resources we have today. They did not have the support we have today. Um, they went into a war that was, I have a lot of opinions about it, but I'm not going to go into it, but it's just, it's different era, different thing. But those guys came back and they, they just had to gut it. Well, and my, and my point of saying all that was they also came back in a much manlier quote unquote time Mm -hmm. when it wasn't cool or acceptable to cry or talk about it or, or tell somebody how you felt and obviously, like even guys today, like yourself, still struggle with some of that stuff. But it's obviously much more, like it's become. And the more guys like you that talk about the struggles you had, how you fixed them, um, is the only way that like it's going to make the kid that's nineteen that's over there right now feel like he can talk about it when he comes home, you know, in five years and is struggling. And if he hears like, oh man, you know, Evan Hafer was talking about this and says it's okay to, you know, somebody sure. that he may be like sure, yeah. super well-known that's been there Especially and done somebody, that. Especially somebody, yeah, like you just said, been there, done that, um, is open with talking about it. And these young kids coming up, they're, in, they're going through the same stuff. They're, they have, you know, role models, if you want to call them that, that, that right. be like, okay, it's cool to, it's okay to, to talk about this stuff. It's okay to, yeah, uh, express yourself and and not feel like yeah, and you're not a puss and yeah, the exactly. whole nine yards. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And honestly, like you you telling that kind of stuff, like in this podcast today and stuff. This isn't a real big one. It's not you know free range and all that stuff. But 
there might be a person, a knife maker that listens to this, that's got a son that's struggling that might mm-hmm. say, Hey, I heard about this weird ass drug. You should look this up or, mm-hmm. and encourage somebody to go do something. And you'll probably never know. Like you'll sure. never get that confirmation that like you help somebody, but like there's a good chance that'll happen, you know? So yeah. I commend you and all the guys like, um, Joe, you know, when Joe Maynard was here and, um, and this happens a lot more on whether it's mic drop podcasts or Andy stumps or black rifles with free range. Like obviously there's a lot more guys that have been there, done that, that are, it's easy for me to say, mm-hmm. you should go get help or you should talk about, it, or you should go do this. But you guys that have been there, done it. Like, that's what's really making a big difference. So, yeah. Sorry about this being so serious and, <laughs> no no god no. very intense and no and i and i told you we weren't going to go that long because it's late at night here but (laughs) no man like we'll uh down the road we'll do another podcast where we just talk about something that we went and did that's cool together but yeah a little more (laughs) lighthearted. yeah but honestly like there's a lot of people too like me that wonder also and not from a like morbid curiosity but like from a huge respect standpoint like I've told a couple guys, and I've never said on the podcast, but like, you know, there's, and I know and you've probably been told this before by other guys, but like, I don't even know what was going through my mind. I think a lot of it was just selfish from the standpoint, like I was 20 when 9-11 happened, right? Mm-hmm. So I see what a lot of you guys did. Um, you didn't necessarily sign up to go over there because you signed up right before, but like I've heard Andy talk a lot about how much respect he has for guys that were signing up after that. Yeah. Sure. They knew. Yeah. If you signed up in 2004, you knew what you were getting. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you wanted to go be an inf- infantry Marine, yeah, you, you're you, going to get you, your ass shot You at. knew what you're you're signing up for, and that's what you wanted. Yeah. yeah, and so I a lot of times feel like, man, like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I go help? And there's all kinds of guys that I know feel that way of like, and honestly, I, I, I look back on it, and I thought to myself, I really think it was more of a like, oh, we're gonna go kick their ass. Like these guys, like it's it's almost like a oh, those boys have we'll a handle. Yeah, yeah, they've got it. Like yeah. that's what they do. And it wasn't ever even a like, this is gonna turn into a big thing that like they need my help or our help. Sure, or, yeah. It's like oh, our Marines and our SEALs and our or you know our Navy and our Army and everybody, they're just right. gonna go whip their ass. Air yeah. Force and here we are 20 years later and it's like, God dang. Like, yeah, I don't know. I can't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what my opinion is on what I would have done if I, if it was after, you know, if it, it happened first, nine eleven. then I, you know, I don't know if I was, I'd have that same thought. Maybe I would. Yeah. But you I, don't I, know. I, I definitely had this, this urge to, to serve in some way, like firefighting, being a cop, or being in the military. I just wanted to, do something uniform for some reason sounded really appealing and just, it felt right. I just kind of wanted to give back and be a part of something bigger than myself. Um, because I, I was selfish. I was a selfish kid and I was in that survival mode and I had to be selfish and, and, and to be in that, uh, that brotherhood to be in that family, to have instantly pick up a hundred, brothers around me and have a team and have a family was uh, it was really appealing to me yeah you know it was yeah. instant like okay i found it I found for my sure family. yeah 
No. Well, it's amazing. And I really do appreciate you opening it up, especially me not being a military guy. I mean, I know it's, uh, it, you know, it means a lot that you are, we're willing to, you know, I didn't know where any of this podcast was going to go. So especially like you say, you started off with your, your childhood and your yeah. dad and like, you've been here for a few hours and, all, and then you drop that. And it's yeah. like, my dad was dealing drugs or, you know, was yeah. a, and I'm trafficking and I'm like, holy shit, like this yeah. definitely was not, but it's, it's, it's cool. And it definitely lays out the whole, like the the whole path. Right. And it's like, how could we have cut it short at an hour, hour and a half? Right. Like, it you, it you gotta, keeps rolling. I mean, and that's what's cool about these whole, um, the whole platform of the podcast and, and yeah. So yeah, no, I appreciate it, it. Yeah, man, of course. I, and, and it's funny because like I am an open book. Like I, I used to be a person where I was like, I don't want to really tell my story, especially my childhood. Cause it can get intense. I, and I would, I would kind of lie or I would just be vague and, and just, I didn't want to get into it. Now I'm just like, if someone wants to know, I'll tell them. I'm, um, and it doesn't bother me at all. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bring up these emotions like yeah some of it is in kind of like intense and i in it but i don't relive it i don't go back there and have these like emotional uh, outpouring but whatever but um it's funny because like in my head i'm like i know this is going to get a little intense and like you're gonna you know your eyebrows are going to raise a few times when i yeah. say certain things i know it's going to happen because i've been there and i've told people my story and they're like what i didn't expect that from you Right. Um, but it's funny because, you know, if I'm dating a girl or something like that and like she'll start asking the same right. and I tell this story, you you can imagine the response I get from right. You know, it's oh, for sure. From like a non military or from like, oh wow, what did I just get myself into? I think by telling all that stuff <laughs> though, it it really almost uh really lends to even more credibility of the healing that that stuff did do at the end. Oh man, it's right because you have every reason to kind of be broken and to be, yeah, you know, um, struggling. And and I, honestly, I believe we all are in a way. Yeah, you know, we all got our own things going on and our own, you know, demons that we're we're working on. But yeah, I mean, I honestly believe ayahuasca has in plant medicine. Um, I will be the first one to stand up and say this stuff works. Yeah, it's it's real stuff. It's not just a, it's not a party drug. It's not something to just leave your your body and get and and like run away from your problems it's not that right, right especially if you're using it in a mature mindset you know well and i should we should say that like i know from those other guys i've heard well and i think then logan logan stark went and did it and he mm-hmm. talked about it and yeah. stuff and um and um it's all like administered there's doctors there's uh they've got you hooked up like least from what Joe had said where he went. Um, I don't know if it's the same place, but like, and, and the other guy said that too. It's, you know, you're not doing some damn drug in a back alley or no, this is, it's in a secured, uh, setting. Uh, you're, you're with other people that are doing it. It's, it's not, I mean, hopefully they're, they're doing it in in a secure place and they're doing it safely. Mm -hmm. Um, but everything, every time I've done it, which is in, you know, 40, sometimes it's all been safe and I've done it with hundreds of different people around mm-hmm. the world. So never was it that I feel I felt unsafe or other people were in an unsafe situation. What makes you feel like, and I've heard that also that it's not necessarily a cure forever. Um, it does seem like, and it's probably an individualized thing, but like what makes you decide like, mm, I'm going to go do that again. Is it just, 
needing a little refresher. Yeah, it's kind of like doing an uh, oil change on your car. Yeah. You know, like it, I just, I did ceremony if close to a month ago and I still feel great from it. Yeah. And, you know, the afterglow wears off, but you learn a lot. And like this last ceremony, I just had tons of thoughts of, you know, um, sitting with my sister and, and, and healing the relationship my sister and I, my older sister, she's four years older. Mm-hmm. Um, we our, our relationship is growing. We're getting better. We talk a lot. Um, but it, at one point we hated each other mm-hmm. all through our childhood. We, we tortured each other. Um, we just did not like each other. I did not really enjoy my family and I moved away and, and I'm so, so a lot of this last ceremony was just me thinking about just getting back to, uh, getting into a more of a brother sister relationship. Instead Would she of do it with you? You think she's already done it, but Is separately. She? Yeah. yeah. So I well, mean, that's she, good. Yeah. Yeah. She's her, her, we're, our mindset are now aligning before we were two different people and we're actually growing to be very alike. And our, our personalities are now finally meshing after, you know, 30 some years. Um, but that's cool. Yeah. And, and the, this, this medicine, this drug or whatever you want to call it, told, you know, came to me and told me, Hey, you need to, sit with your sister more, work on that relationship, spend more time with her, talk to her and, and, and just be that brother. And I, and that's what I want. Like, I don't want this like weird distance relationship with any of my family. Right. I want to be very close. I want to be a very uh, openly emotional person and, and, and express myself freely around my family. I don't want it to be closed off and weird. And then they pass away. And then I'm like, I have all these regrets of, not telling my dad I love him every chance I could or hugging him or same with my sister. Like, right. Even though we had a crazy past and a crazy upbringing does not change the fact of today Mm -hmm. now. And was your dad able to kind of get straightened out? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my dad, my dad needs to have a book written about him. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. You need to have your own book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, maybe Maybe half of it's about your dad. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, maybe every family member gets their own book, but yeah, my dad, I mean, he's been rich twice, man. He's, he's in the drug business. He had houses all over Miami. He had boats and toys and just, just, you know, whatever. And then he lost it all, got, uh, really bad into drugs for you know 15 20 years gets sober when i'm around 14 15 years old um s- starts doing aluminum storm shutters buys a company that someone was selling right before katrina hit oh geez he went from making six seven hundred bucks a week to seven hundred a million a month Jeez, like he had so much business that he could not keep up. He had to turn people away. Yeah. He had, I don't know how many workers and right. I mean, he was just raking it. And then he went again from zero to hero. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a wild individual. My dad, he's been, yeah. like I said, hung overdose, stabbed, shot at, I mean, left for dead, over to, I mean, the guy's been through it, had a crazy childhood. Um, his mom was wild. My dad, my grandfather, his dad was a bookie in Miami. Yeah. His mom was a, a cop and a Playboy bunny. Like, just, <laughs> yeah, dude. I 
I can go on yeah. about my family and it's crazy. It just, it, it sounds like a, like a, a Netflix, net Netflix special. Right. Like, honestly, it's, and wild. it's funny cause you're just such a quiet, like unassuming <laughs> quiet guy, you know, calm guy, but you've also definitely lived your, uh, your fair share of like, I've lived a few lives, man. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <I'm> so, a little tired. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It's time to just relax in yeah. Montana or Idaho Dude, and drink exactly, some coffee. Man. That's why I'm up here, and that's why I'm hanging out with people like you, just like living. Like I watch people, and I and I'm I'm very observant. Mm-hmm. I watch people live good lives and wholesome lives, and they're good humans, and that's who I want to be around. Sure. Like, oh, it took me a long time to like trim the fat of like who's good and who's not, or who's in it for just themselves. Right, and that's I you know my journey is just finding myself. Sure. You know, that's all it is, is just going to where I feel good. I'm around good people. I'm doing good things. I'm, I'm giving back to my community. I'm helping others. I'm being kind. Um, I'm trying not to be a selfish human. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just trying to live a good life now. Well, that's awesome, man. And let's, uh, that's almost three damn hours, which, know, uh, which is, which is awesome. It does. It, if these chairs weren't so uncomfortable, we could probably do two or three more. I'm definitely buying. I need to call Joe Rogan and ask him what chairs he's using. Yeah, yeah, so, they're nice. Uh, yeah. So actually, uh, Andy Stumpf, he's got. He said he's got the same chairs there, and I sat in those the other day. So they keep you your posture. Yeah, up and, everything. and they're yeah. like comfortable. And these felt comfortable when you sit on them in the store for about five minutes. It's like, oh, those are soft, and then. After two hours, it's your like, bones stick sinking. Yeah. <laughs> this is a low budget podcast here. So, <laughs> all right, man. Thanks a lot. You're Let's, uh, we'll have a fun weekend. So, absolutely appreciate. Looking it. forward to it. Yeah. Thanks, brother.